So, Ryan, it's December, the month of December, which can only mean one thing. Christmas movies. Can can you hear that? I can. I can hear the festive cheer. Oh, I, can... I thought you could say sleigh bells then. I was like, I'll edit those in later. I'm not going to edit in festive <laughs> cheer, though. <laughs> hey. uh, yeah. it's, it's that time of year where... Well, there's an, an abundance of great snacking food. I think say love for fellow man. Oh, no, 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 no. If any, if you spent a Christmas with the Etheringtons, as you have, you know, yeah. Christmas is not a time for love it's and happiness. Love of fellow man. Yeah, it's yeah. more. Where's mine? Why do people keep talking over me? Explain the rules of this game. I'm getting really annoyed now. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a culprit of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, anyway. <laughs> that not women's standard. It's it's December. It's Christmas movie month. We've got We've two got, yeah. fantastic Christmas movies coming up. Yeah. Jim opposite me may disagree with my choice, but <laughs> yeah. I believe. Yeah, but my pick is so good it will uh, carry over your pick, so it's still a good pick for the month, if you know what I mean. Um we're starting off this this episode is going to be Die Hard, the classic. Yeah, baby. Uh, next next month's Ryan's pick. We'll, we're less said about that, the better. Uh, but <laughs> it's jingle all the way. I know it's much maligned. I know people hate on it, mm. but jingle all the way has grown on me in, in in previous years, and for some reason, it's a go-to Christmas movie for me. Yeah, well, we'll discuss that next week. <laughs> Discuss it, we shall. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Bury Our Bones the show that lives, breathes and dies the classic movies you love. We are your hosts, me, Jimmy Murphy, with me as always, the die-hard to my just-die-already Mr. Ryan Edmonds. In today's show, we'll be burying our bones with the 1988 Christmas party to end all Christmas parties, die-hard. So join us as we put on our rubber hobbit's feet, Sully Roy Rogers, turn a white vest green and moonlight as the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Life lessons for me, Matthew McConaughey. Come with me if you won't live. Life lesson number 86. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and have a look, you might just miss it. So... 1988 Die Hard, yeah. a John McTiernan classic, a Bruce Willis classic. What are your thoughts? I think it's a classic. <laughs> that's, good. that's a good start, then, isn't yeah, yeah, yeah. it? That's a great movie, great movie. Do you remember the first time you saw it? I genuinely don't remember the first Maybe time I saw it. It's. I think it's something that's so embedded in pop culture, mm. so many references to stuff that it's just kind of always been there. And my memories of first watching it have evaporated into the ether. So, yeah, yeah mine's the same. I have a really, really strong memory 
of sitting in my kitchen in my parents' house. I was probably about 12 or 13 and it being on the black and white TV they had in the kitchen and I was cooking a, I was cooking a pizza. It was in the oven. I wasn't cooking anything. Really. All right, Giuseppe. <laughs> <laughs> I was reheating a frozen pizza. Um, and it was like, a, I'm sure it was like a Friday night and, and it was winter. It was coming up to Christmas. Um, we'll get into the Christmas film, Christmas film uh, argument. The Christmas film or not Christmas film debate, I should say. But yeah, it was it was winter and it was on the black and white TV and I remember sitting there watching it on that, but that wasn't the first time I'd seen it. But I have a, that's my oldest, most strongest memory because I remember sitting there watching it and it got to the point where um, the, the, the policeman who's outside the plaza turns to the... Is it CIA agents who turn up in their helicopters, them lot? Yeah, FBI, and he, and he I believe, says, yeah. FBI, that's it, yeah. And he says, why don't, why don't you wake up and smell what you're shoveling? And it was sampled on a track by a band called Ned's Atomic Dustbin, and I never knew that's where the sample was from. And I think that was probably one of, if not the first time, I'd ever accidentally stumbled across something that had been sampled in a song in its original form. And I, I proper got excited. <gasps> like, oh, that's where that's from. Like, it was like I'd found something out and that is burnt into my brain, you know. Um, but yeah, like you, this film has always existed. I don't know when I first saw it. It's just always, in its truest sense, it is a classic. It has just always been around, you know. I mean, the, the earliest thing that I can remember about Die Hard, it isn't actually about the film, I can remember having the Die Hard trilogy game mm. on PS1, which is, I mean, each each game is a completely different game in the sense of one's a first-person shooter, one's like a time crisis arcade-type game, and the other one I th- think is a driving game. That's my overriding memory of the Die Hard with Avengers game is the taxi cab scene through yeah. the park part yeah. of the game. Yeah. That's the earliest thing that I can remember, and I can just remember this uh, really bad... Polygon, John McClane, <laughs> yeah. uh, which was very clearly, you could clearly see that he had bare feet, which was a good start. Yeah. Uh, just running through an even worse Polygon, Nakatomi Plaza, mm-hmm. and working your way up the levels. And yeah. That was probably, yeah, that was my first first thing into Die Hard. I, I must have seen the film shortly after or shortly before, mm. pretty sure. Uh, and I can't, as I can't remember, I can't remember how quickly I fell in love with it. But I know that I've always enjoyed it. It's always been a. I don't. I don't know anyone who doesn't like Die Hard. I'm sure I do. I just probably never have conversations. I about try it, to right? keep my myself clear of people who don't like Die Hard, yeah. not actively, but in retrospect, it, was it the, makes it total was the first sense. First thing you ever said to me. <laughs> Was it? Yeah, it's dry art. I was like, it's all right. Yeah. yeah. Like, we can be friends. <laughs> yeah. I, I even put the clipboard, clipboard down. Uh, so I didn't even have to go to question uh, two. It was made even weirder by the fact you had no shoes on and a white vest at the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I cut my hair into a balding yeah. 80s action you star. He shaved the widow's peak into your haircut. Which is very strange. <laughs> you call it strange. I call it amazing. Yeah, yeah, I was in. I was in love with you the moment I met you. <laughs> I was like, "This dude's all right." Eh, wrong again. 
Um, should we do the plot? We always forget to do the plot. Let's do the plot now. Let's kick it off. Because we get halfway hot. through the show normally, and then remember we haven't actually mentioned what happens in the film. Okay, let's get it to a place where I can read it. So, NYPD cop John McClane goes on a Christmas vacation to visit Sorry, his... right, do you want to do it in a movie voice? I reckon you've got a good movie voice on you, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'll try and find some suitable... I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I will try and find some suitable some suitable action movie synthesizer to put underneath this while it happens. You know what I mean? All I have to do is just channel Pablo Francisco, little tortilla boy. <laughs> Uh, anybody who knows that know sketch, that is, it's yeah. check it out. It's amazing. But here we go. <clears throat> NYPD cop John McLean gives a... See, it's not great, is it? No, no. It sounded like um, Christian Bale. <laughs> <laughs> We're already over. <laughs> but you can't hear is That's Ryan storming out of the room now in, in disgust. I've given up with this podcast. <laughs> Little tortilla boy. Little tortilla boy. Little, tort- little tortillas. <laughs> NYPD cop John McLean gives a... You still sound ill. <laughs> like you need a lozenge. Little lozenge. Lozenge boy. What's your, deep, what's your deepest register? Not very. I have a naturally can high tombra. Can you go down? I no. can go down, no. but it doesn't sound particularly NYPD great. NYPD cop John McLean. NYPD cop John McLean. Oh, that's pretty nice. He's NYPD closer. cop John McLean. If anyone hasn't noticed, goes this on a film Christmas has, vacation. has an NYPD cop in it called John McLean. We've established keep, that. keep repeating it, then maybe it will stick. I was going to do it in my normal voice because I can't do a movie voice, okay? NYPD. Yeah, one more time. Oh. NYPD cop. John. NYPD cop John McLean goes on a Christmas vacation to visit his wife Holly in Los Angeles. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's not enough light. <laughs> Can't read. Oh, start as you mean to go on. Hey, 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 hey. Hey. NYPD cop John McLean goes on a Christmas vacation to visit his wife Holly in Los Angeles where she works for the Nakatomi Corporation. While they are there, the Nakatomi headquarters for a Christmas party, a group of robbers led by Hans Gruber take control of the building and hold everyone hostage, with the exception of John. While they take... While they plan to perform a lucrative heist, unable to escape with no mediation... It's a good job you're not trying to do this voice at the same time. <laughs> Let's start that line again. Let's just start the whole thing again. NYPD cop John McLean goes on a Christmas vacation to visit his wife Holly in Los Angeles, where she works for the Nakatomi Corporation. While they are there, the Nakatomi headquarters for a Christmas party, a group of robbers led by Hans Gruber take control of the building and hold everyone hostage, with the exception of John, while they plan to perform a lucrative heist. Unable to escape and with no immediate police response, John is forced to take matters into his own hands. Into his own hands. You've got it much better than I have. 56 years of Christmas. How old is this film? 88. How many 1988, years is so that is that makes it the same age as your wife, my sister. So that makes it 35 years old coming up. 35 years old. Nearly 36 even. 36. I was going to say your, your sister's older than that. <laughs> anyway. Well, I, I'm, I'm 31. 
So she's four years older than me. She's 35. Yeah. So, so it's 36, wasn't it? 36 years old. I thought it came out in 87. Did it come out in 88? It says 88, yeah. sure July right. 20th, 88. Yeah, it's in the summer. A summer blockbuster. Christmas movie that's a summer blockbuster. But that's like all the TV shows. They all film the Christmas specials in the middle of August, don't they? Yeah, they don't normally release them in the middle of August, though, do they? So, I mean, we might as well get into this now as we're here. The block, the blockbuster? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is a blockbuster. The uh, age-old age argument of whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. It clearly is, um, 100%. Although Bruce Willis himself said it's not, and he was in it. I think he's wrong. It did come out in summer, which would make it a summer blockbuster, not a Christmas movie. It's set at Christmas. He's at a Christmas party. It has a Christmas music at the end of it. I, it's not Christmas. And there's, there's even memes like, it's not Christmas till I see Hans Gruber fall off the Nakatomi Tower, right? You know what I mean? I mean, there's so many references to to Christmas. It's not just it's set at Christmas, because if that was it... Ho, 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 now I have a machine gun, Exactly, right? you yeah, know, yeah. there's so many references to it that for anybody to say it's not a Christmas film mm. just because it came out in July, I mean, it doesn't really really make any difference. Hmm. The reason it came out in July is because it's it's a blockbuster, it's a summer blockbuster. Hmm. So that's when you're going to get the most most eyes on the product. That's when you're going to get the most people to come and see it. Hmm. So it makes sense. It's 100% a Christmas movie. Yeah. I don't even feel like this is a debate anymore. I feel like it's been answered by the fact that anybody who's seen the film, I reckon that's who actually argues it's not a Christmas film with people who don't actually or haven't seen it in a while. I think it's contrary types. Um, it also has the same plot as Home Alone, which is a Christmas movie, so definitely a Christmas movie. You know what I mean? He's actually one of the people who was uh, due to be cast as John McClane. Uh, what? Macaulay Culkin? No, Joe Pesci. <laughs> yeah, no, um, yeah, 100% Christmas movie. Bruce Willis says it's not, though. When he was asked a few years ago, he said, no, it's not a Christmas movie. It came out in the summer, which really annoyed me because he's wrong in it, because it is, you know what I mean? Um, I wouldn't say I watch it every Christmas. You can watch it, though, in the summer. You can watch it any time of the year. It doesn't have to be Christmas to watch it. It feels really Christmassy. The sequel, it's constantly snowing, again, set at Christmas, at the airport in New York, I believe, isn't it? Um, also makes it feel really... Makes those first two feel really Christmassy. And the third one is set in the summer. They're running around in uh, in Harlem and, and various places in New York, and it's clearly summer. It's quite hot. But those first two, undeniably winter-based winter based Christmas fun. You know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I suppose... From, a, from an element of what are you looking from a Christmas... What are you looking for from a Christmas film? Mm. If you're looking for festive cheer, then, yeah, it's probably not going to be the film that you stick on. Yeah, it's got a happy ending. It's got I'd, some, I'd cheer in it, it quite a lot. You know what I mean? I think that says more about you than anything else. Uh, it's not necessarily a film that you're going to sit around with, with the family and watch a nice Christmas film. It's not Elf. Oh, it's you not... Can, it, late at night, though? Oh, yeah. 10 o'clock at night, the kids, the kids have gone, gone to, to bed. bed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the sherry's pouring, full of mince pies, you know what I mean, sitting on the sofa. I could watch Die Hard. I just think, I just think people dis, perhaps dislike the film and so therefore it's not a Christmas film. Mm. But 
for me, it is a Christmas film. Uh, but it's also a film you don't have to watch at Christmas, as you just said. So it, it's multifaceted. It's it's layered. It's like onions, as Shrek would say, that it has layers. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah. Nice seamless transition to Shrek there. Yeah. You heard it here first. Who thought we'd be speaking about Shrek on a Die Hard podcast? Anyone who's listened to a single episode before this might... Um... I might guess this was going to go a bit sideways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, July July 20th, 1988. So firmly in the summer blockbuster release schedule. Mm. Uh, kind of right at the height of, probably towards the end of summer by that point. Uh, from a point of view of most, most blockbusters released in that sort of mid to late June period. So that they set the trend of the... It's easier to start start the the summer with a hot film than to follow other hot films because mm. uh, you're always going to be trying to top, oh, such and such was released two weeks ago. Let's try and top that. Whereas if you go first, you set the benchmark. Uh, so, yeah, it's firmly in that summer blockbuster category, but, you know, stick it on when those uh, Christmas decorations are going up. And you're up, you're up a ladder trying to put the tinsel yeah. in the final corner. Yeah. And if you fall off, you can pretend you can Gruber just like Alan Rickman. So this was like 1988. So you've got, it's, it's near, it's near the beginning of the peak of action, Hollywood action. It starts in the late 80s, goes all the way through to roughly mid 90s, your peak action. Buddy Cop, your lethal weapons, which would have been the year before, because that is that is eighty seven. That right? is eighty seven. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you got you know, Arnie would have been literally in his late eighties. Pomp, you're talking Predator, Running Man esque era, Commando kind of era, Arnie. So it comes right out of that, right out at that time where America is and the world, I suppose, globally is really getting into this idea of the action hero, isn't it? You know. Um, which is interesting because they cast Bruce Willis in a movie playing an action role. And from my understanding of it, um, it didn't go over too well at first. You know? Well, it's difficult for us to kind of, or spe- specifically for me to imagine a time where Bruce Willis wasn't a big action star. Mm. But at the time, he wasn't. He'd done Moonlighting. You know, yeah. that was fairly successful. He was like he, a romantic comedy kind of dude. I think yeah. as as the uh, Stephen D'Souza called him he was a smart ass so in writing die hard how do you make him not come across like a smart ass mm. uh well he comes across like quite a bit of a smart ass in die hard to be fair you know what I mean? obviously he didn't manage to not, <laughs> d- not achieve <laughs> i'd that. be interested to see how much of a smart ass he is in um moonlighting then because he's he's quite he's he's quite wisecracking in that and yeah. i think that's probably you know, ho ho ho! Now I have a machine gun. Yeah, conversations you know. between D'Souza and and Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis was like, bring bring that bring that humour on because mm. that's what he was known for. That's what yeah. he's good at. Moonlighting was like a romantic comedy program yeah, with yeah. him and Sybil Shepherd. I think he played a, de- a detective. I think it's a detective agency called Moonlighting Detective Agencies. But mm. I vaguely remember it being on TV. I was very young. Um, but yeah, from what what I understand is when the trailer first went out, 
people either laughed or booed when Bruce Willis came on. They didn't like it, did they? No, and it was they were worried before it came Which out. Which is why sort of earlier posters and the early posters he's not on it. it he's not on it. And it's yeah. it's Nakatomi Plaza, which is the the selling thing about the... Yeah. Which, it I mean... It shows you how little confidence they yeah. had in it, yeah. And, I mean, for, to be fair, from a, a stakeholder perspective of let's bank on Bruce Willis, if you look at his track record before that in film, he'd done, I think it's called First Dates, which mm. was a, a romantic comedy. Romantic so, comedies, yeah. So not a... And then he had a film called Sunset, which apparently nobody saw, mm. and... It's a, it, this is a big undertaking to go. Okay, we're going to put we're going to put Bruce Willis in this role, and okay, it, it was a a previous intellectual property. Yeah. Uh, for for those who for, for those Frankie, who don't know, it's, it's a sequel to the Detective, uh, which was uh, starring Frank Sinatra, mm-hmm. old Blue Eyes himself. Uh, and he was offered first he refusal. He had to get first refusal because of his contract. And by that right, time, yeah. he was like, I think I'm too old for this. Could you imagine that? Uh, old blue yeah, eyes. Yeah, just running around with no socks on. <laughs> <laughs> just doesn't seem right, does it? You know I mean? Yeah. It, it's interesting, though, that, like, so only only two years later, you get into um, similar to similar territory with the casting of Michael Keaton as Batman come known for his comedy chops um uh pre-internet but the the nerd version of the internet back then you know comic books and opinion letters and things like that no one was happy with the casting of michael keaton for similar reasons he's not an action star and all this sort of stuff the dude from mr mum and all that you know um so there must be something in the air in the late 80s there must have been looking for something i think you you've had lethal weapon which shane black's amazing script for Lethal Weapon, um, reinvented the the Buddy Cop movie, which had been around forever, hadn't it? You know, Buddy Cop movies and such, all the way back to, you know, Popeye Doyle and all of those sort of movies. But I'm wondering if, like, because there's such an element of humour in the Lethal Weapons, mostly the sequels, but the first one still has elements of humour in it, where if they were looking for... So you got your your Stallone, not a lot of humor in Stallone's movies. Arnie's, there's there's humor in there, you know what I mean? It's a different type type of humor though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's uh, I've just killed somebody pithy one-liner. Yeah, that, yeah. So, well, some of them are pithy, some of them <laughs> just aren't. Some of them uh, are just the way he delivers it. Though, yeah, you know what I mean? uh, yeah. In that thick accent. And but. I and I wonder how much the success of this Bruce Willis wise mm. being a hit you know, influence the casting of Michael Keaton as Batman. Mm. Because you think, if this had gone the other way and wasn't a hit and flopped all over the shop... It would have been re- you know, rethinking okay, everything. Okay, it's yeah. not the same, you know, this is 20th Century Fox. I was going to say... Warner Brothers studio, was Batman. Yeah. But yeah. Warner Brothers were probably looked at it and gone, well, we tried, we tried a comedic lead mm. and that didn't... Well, they tried a comedic lead and that didn't work. Mm. We need somebody who who is a you know proper leading man or a leading man of yesteryear in that in that that kind of ilk, uh, and it, you know I think for the for the most part, it's again it's just really very very difficult to imagine Bruce Willis not being a big action star because it's it, it, he took he, is, he took to it like it? a duck to water. <laughs> it was very much. All of the action scenes looked legitimate. It didn't look out of place. I think, you know, you've mentioned it previously in the Predators 
film. Adrian Brody is the hardened military guy. Doesn't quite work. No, I think no, all no. he does is he, he does the Bale voice. I'm going to speak with a gruff voice. Yeah, some so push-ups. now I'm a, I'm a hardened <laughs> yeah. military leader. Yeah, I, you know, again, I, I think there was a... I feel like there was a period where action films kept trying to get like proper actors in to do stuff. I think after after Batman again with Christian Bale... I think they were like, well, what we need is like proper method type method actors in our action movies. That will be a thing. And then, as you say, in the case of Predators, it does not work. No offense to Adrian Brody, but it it took me out of that movie at every second. You know what I mean? Um, unlike Die Hard, where it works superbly, Bruce Willis is perfectly cast as Bruce Willis would be doing Bruce Willis in every film after this and. Probably, like I say, I can't really remember what it was like in Moonlighting, but he's been doing the same acts for the next 30-odd years. Um, and it's a great act. It's a great shtick. You know what you're going to get with a Bruce Willis movie. And it all starts here with Die Hard, doesn't it? It's mindlessly gratuitous violence, like funny one-lines and impossible scenarios, you know, and usually a vest for a while. There was a lot of vest-wearing going on. Yeah, it's kind of the, the symbol of the late 80s in a, in a particular demographic in New York. And this movie uh, is very 80s, it's, yet timeless. It, you know, there's so it's very hard. I, I find it very difficult to pinpoint what makes an, action, an 80s action movie 80s. Mm. What makes it? Scale. Everything is just to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. There's no sort of like, oh, well, if I don't do this, then I'm going to mm. get a bit hurt. It's like, oh, no, if you don't do this, everyone's going to die. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the ridiculous action scenes, huge implausible plots, the gratuitous mindless violence, like, from start to finish, and every character is on Red Bull. Like, the baddies are bad, the goodies are good, the women are women, the da 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 The 80s cokehead in this is the most 80s yuppie cokehead. Hans, Sprechen's baby! Do- <laughs> Sprechen's a Deutsch. You know, yeah, he's, yeah. he's just so... There, there's nothing subtle at all in any of it, you know. I mean, I've, I'd forgotten a lot about this when I watched it, and when I first saw him... I can't remember what the first scene is where you see him, but I was like, it's not going to be too long before he's doing cocaine. And then straight away, it's like, oh, hi. Hi, Harley. <laughs> you know, and he just yeah. he's just instantly dislikable. Hans, baby. <laughs> it's so good. It's like, like, and that's the thing, for something that is so of the 80s, it's still somehow timeless. It's so, I guess when something's good enough, it transcends those sort of things, you know, because it is steeped. In in everything about it is so of its time. But I guess it was like um I wouldn't say it was genre defining, but as close to that as you can get. hundred percent genre defining. Do you think? Well, you think about it. How many films have there been where there's been a lone person in a singular location taken on you've got I think, you know, for anybody who's seen movies that made us, there's a there's a little like uh overdub of that episode where it's like die hard in the white house die hard on a plane uh, die hard in mexico die hard in in, in and it's so true it's true actually you know, yeah, it's that olympus has fallen or whatever yeah like, that is just die hard in the white house oh, yeah, it's exactly 100%, 100%, 100%. home alone is die hard but he's 12 you know what i mean it's it's and you know it's slightly different from the spec from the spectrum of obviously you've got the, the Schwarzenegger and the Stallone films where it's one man against an army but that's usually over masses of locations mm. and usually fairly over the top I think mm. whilst I'm not saying that 
there are there are very high stakes in this and everything is uh not over the top what's the word i'm looking for everything is is big but it doesn't get to a point where it's like well, this is just getting a bit silly now. You know? Well, that's what I, I really like. He's not using a machine gun for what seems like five minutes without having to reload, that I mean, kind that of thing. That does kind of happen a lot, though. You know? I think that's But, I mean, if you even you just think about the concept that he spends the entire film without any shoes on, it's a weird thing to have in a film. The main hero spends the entire film... Only once does he try to put on some dead dude's boots. <laughs> they don't fit. Um... And then he gives up after that. I don't think you don't see him trying to find any shoes after that. He does wrap his feet in his shirt at one point. And um, you do happen to notice, if you look very closely, you can see a pair of rubber feet that he's wearing. Oh, yeah, I've got that. I, I think that is at uh, 52 minutes in. I think it's it is. just after Hans goes, The glass! But in a German accent. Uh, oh, no, sorry. It's a, um, I think it's 155 minutes in. Does that sound right? 155 minutes that's into what, it. That's what I've written. 155 <laughs> minutes is well over two hours. This, this movie's not that long, is no, it? That's no, that's two hours and 35 minutes right, right there. That's what I've written. 155. Actually, what I've written is 155 feet. Uh, I don't know what that means. Um, Maybe that's damn. how many feet he had to go through when he was working how on the film. How long is this movie, do you know? It's just under two hours. About an hour and 49. This definitely doesn't happen an hour and 55 then, does it? I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, you can definitely see... What film were you watching? <laughs> you can definitely see his his rubberized feet a couple of times in the film. One point is when he's up on the roof is and he jumps. I think uh, it's, not when he, it's not when he blows up the roof and he jumps off with the um, hose wrapped around him. It's before that and they're shooting at him and he jumps over and his, his um, trousers, like, not roll up, but you know bunch up or whatever and he's clearly got big rubber hobbit feet on which is just funny as funny as anything but um but what you say is it is a really odd thing to have in a film it's an odd concept however when you when you kind of have a little look at it a bit deeper and you analyze it just a tad more and you go well in that moment where you hear a gunshot Hmm. your first thought isn't let's put some shoes on you're, you know, okay, he's a cop, so he's perhaps a little bit more used to those environments where you've got to think fast and, mm. you know, think on your feet, for lack of a better term. But to just go and straight away into... I wouldn't call it hero mode, because it, it's not, not... He's not a hero in this. Mm. He is in the sense of he saves the day, but he's kind of... He's not your typical archetypal hero where you go, he can do everything. He, he falters quite a lot. Mm. You know, the 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 scene in the elevator shaft where he uh, he falls. You know, he's yeah. not doing things that are. Everything is almost a cause and effect in the sense of, oh God, I've got to deal with this situation. How am I going to do it? Oh, that'll do. It's not. Mm. I'm. Uh, you know, it's not an Arnold Schwarzenegger film where it's like, I'm I'm six foot five, built. You know, like a shit house mm. and. I can do anything. You know, there's a lot of uh, realism in his... He's, As Bruce Willis said, the thing that made him like the character was that he's just a, he's just a normal guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. You're the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Story of my life. Um, that's the sequel, though. Um, yeah, it's, it is interesting. It's a fascinating concept, though. I, I don't think I could... Uh, 
run around shooting a bunch of terrorists without my shoes on. That doesn't that doesn't seem right to me. You know I mean? Yeah, the, the shoe the shoes <laughs> is the thing that's stopping me right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, he also has the the magic ability to turn his vest from white to green between one scene to the next. His vest suddenly turns green. It's uh, you know when he's crawling around in the I think it's just after the elevator scene. He's crawling through the air vents and he's up and the dude's poking the air vents. And he shoots him. His vest is white when he gets out of that air vent. And for the rest of the film, he's wearing a green vest. And I never noticed it in the years I've spent watching that film. I never noticed. I just always went, oh, his shirt gets dirty. It doesn't. It becomes a green shirt. <laughs> Literally from one scene to the next, he's now wearing a green shirt. Uh, it's crazy. I, I didn't notice it until it was pointed out to me, and then you can't unsee it. Well, that does remind me of the reaction that John McTiernan had when... They they just finished filming, just finished editing, put the first cut together and they screened it for audiences and I think it's about 25 minutes in and there's a, there's a scene towards the end of the film where they're like, how are they going to get away? And out of the truck comes an ambulance. Mm. Well, in, in the uh, opening shots where they, they, the terrorists first arrive... They all come out of the van and you can see right into the truck. There's no, no ambulance. And there's no ambulance. Yeah. And people were like, oh no, it's ruined the film. And John McTiernan was like, I don't care. We're going to put it out anyway. Mm. You know, almost... Uh, <laughs> yeah, if, you're, if, if that's what ruins the film for you, then you've got issues really, isn't it? Yeah. It's just, you know, I think there's so much you could probably look here and go, well, that's not realistic. That's not realistic, mm. but... That's not one. That's one of those things. This where is you, not. You this can, not that film. <laughs> no, if you're looking for ultra realism, then yeah, then you know, should have got Adrian Brody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, I think a lot of people do agree with us. It was a very, very successful film. Was it successful out the gate? Well, let's let's have a let's look at some figures. Okay, so it had a budget of oh, twenty. Like David Bowie. Then let's listen to some figures. <laughs> It had a budget of $28 million. Right. And on its opening weekend, unfortunately, it only made 601000 That's because it had Bruce Willis in it. Which is a very low number. Mm. That is squeaky bum time mm. for anybody who's got any kind of money in this film. $601,000 on a $28 million Dollar budget uh, on your opening weekend. Mess, you know, you also spent advertising as well, haven't you? You know... You know uh, that is probably, for a lot of executives at the time, that's kind of confirming that we shouldn't have banked on on a Bruce Willis. We were right to take him off the poster mm. because nobody's coming to see yeah, the film. Whoever, whoever decided to cast him is probably squeaking at that point, aren't they? You exactly. Yeah. However, as if miracles can happen... Was it word of mouth? Something happened. Mm. So probably word of mouth, people saw it and liked the film, fell in love with it. Because how can you not? Let's mm -hmm. be honest. Gross, US and Canada, a whopping 83.3 million. Nice. So that more than makes that... up for a poor opening weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then worldwide, 141.6 million. Nice. What's... Which is a staggering amount. So yeah. that's 120 million pounds. Uh, and in today's coinage, 319 million quid. <sighs> So it that's very, very, very successful. And, and that's not including the computer games. You know what I mean? And, and, <laughs> and any all other the DVD of, sales. Yeah. 
I mean, or the the diehard white vest turning green, hyper global color vests that they brought out. I wonder I mean? how many men who were wearing white vests and thinking, or their wives and their girlfriends were thinking, I wish he'd be a bit more stylish. Mm. Diehard comes out. Those people must have been like, hey, hey. This is this is the look now. White, Everybody white wants... vests were around for most of the nineties. Now I think early noughties as well. There's a lot of white vestiges, and it's all Bruce Willis, bruised Willis fault. He's got one of them bruised Willis. So as we've just discussed, very successful at the box office. If you go by IMDb ratings, mm-hmm. which are always I find a, a very quick way of just seeing how well it's received, an eight point two out of ten. Mm-hmm. which is puts it in the top 100 films, I believe, of all time, according to IMDb scores. Wow, really? Uh, and then a Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 94%. That's so amazing. very, very well, well-liked and yeah. adored. Uh, as we said, July 20th, 1988, and it was directed by the famous John McTiernan. It was based on a Roderick Thorpe novel, called Nothing Lasts Forever, which was a sequel to The Detective, as we discussed earlier, which was uh, converted to the screen, starring Blue Eyes, Frank Sinatra. I've never seen it. I haven't seen it either, and it's, I mean, it's as far removed from what Die Hard is as you could possibly get. It was, I think, yeah, but it was just a detect- out of sheer, like, curiosity i, I, I think it's thought a, i would have watched it to be honest i think it's a t- it's a film of its time it's very much in the same it's a murder investigation mystery film mm. so it's very in the same ilk as you know your vertigos your north by northwest that kind of time sounds all right uh and probably is but if you're looking for something that is similar to die hard mm. you're not really going to get that no but no but it's always interesting it to see place, where these things it? come from isn't it you know? It was uh, so the the original screenplay was first written by Jeb Stewart. He was the first guy to kind of convert it from the novel Nothing Lasts Forever. Uh, before eventually Stephen Souza came in and took over and put some more humour in there and basically finished finished it off. It was produced by Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver. Joel Silver, pretty much responsible for most. Of the eighties, nineties action movies that Predator, we were just talking about, Commando, yeah. Lethal Weapon, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, so, so, right. it was uh, the the scores compo- composed by Michael Kamen. Michael Caine, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, really I told you before, you've got to be louder in this bit. Bazoom. Play your violin properly. Bazoom. Where are you? I can't hear you. If I said it once, I've said it a thousand times. I do not want the cello going over the kazoo. Mm. Timpani, louder, louder. <laughs> Not that loud. Pipe it down over there. <laughs> and uh, finally, it was uh, the cinematographer was John DeBont, who, an interesting fact about John DeBont, mm. for those who don't know, he worked on a film called Raw, which was set in the African Serengeti, and he was legitimately partially scalped by a lion because they were real lions and they weren't wow. trained lions. They were legitimate wild lions. It and he swiped the top of his head, did it? Or yeah. Like tried and to chew his uh, head off. Carried, on, carried on filmmaking. And that's, mm. an, that's enough to make anybody go, I don't want to do movies anymore, even if they don't have lions. 
But yeah. I often think that you see that when you're there, like yeah, actors are like acting with lions or whatever, or pythons or bears, and I'm like, nah, because you're not allowed to drug them anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's not like that. All the animals. It's not like that. It's not like that. Bear is full of Valium. You know, what I mean? it's like. Nah. Well, they do say in show business, never work with animals or children. Yeah, it's like it's like the chimpanzees or something, isn't it? It's like just don't don't look him directly in the eye. So yeah. Oh, he's lovely, really, but don't piss him off. Yeah. It's you know Is that um that last Rambo film they made and I saw Slice Alone talking about the I think it was a Python. And he said, Oh, can we not we're not doing this with special effects? I mean you can't afford it. <laughs> you have to do it with a real one. He was like, oh, all right. <laughs> I mean, what does the world come to when special effects cost more than actual <laughs> snake? Actually, it's much cheaper. Know. We, we borrowed one. It's, it's, it's probably... Can you train a snake? I don't think you can. You know what I mean? A lot of people have died trying. Yeah, I don't uh, think you can train a snake. I don't think they're trainable. Yeah. You know? I mean... Can I, need... I don't think a snake gives a monkeys about a bonio treat. You know what I mean? Getting its belly rubbed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They don't, they just, I've never understood anybody who... I mean, I, I, I understand the fascination with wild animals, but to actually go and work with them when they're wild animals, it's like... I've got BBC. You're ask- I, don't, I don't need to go there. I can just watch <laughs> David Attenborough talk about them. You know you're I mean? asking for trouble. Yeah. So this film obviously stars, as we have already mentioned, the charismatic Bruce Willis. Yeah, or Bruno himself. Yeah. He, I mean, he does just captivate the screen immediately doesn't he it's not oh he's cool yeah yeah there's something about bruce willis and i always say sometimes there's there's certain quality about an actor that you can't quite put your finger on but just makes you want to watch him more and more and more and bruce willis has got that in abundance oh he's a movie star through and through yeah you know probably if you think about it He's probably the last proper movie star. Movie star, not actor in movies, but movie star. Think, who else? I mean, obviously you've that got... That can't sp- possibly be true. Hang on, I'm trying to think. The, uh, the Rock's a, an action star. Will Smith's an action star. You, like, they, all these, Will Smith came well after this. Yeah, and, but- Like, went on... And a similar thing was comedy and he well he's a rapper then a comedian and then went on to be like the most bankable action star i'm not gonna lie though you, you give me a choice between willis and will smith oh I'm no it's, it's not comparable but it doesn't make willis the last though does it um, for, for me he's the last i mean i think po- probably as you say it was the turning point and the peak of those the, that type of movie and i think beyond that the the start perhaps he kind of started the trend of going for more comedic roles, and it's so an, as it's, a, it's as an a interesting result, point. I think I take your point. It's an interesting point because obviously Stallone, Schwarzenegger already established. Gibson was already established. Well, Lethal Weapon had been out. Mad Max. So he's, I yeah, yeah, yeah. say he was established as an action star. I think. After '88, I'm trying to think who came through afterwards. Like my mind, I'm just drawing blanks. Apart from Will Smith and The Rock, I just think it, it was a different kind. Gerard kind of, Butler. 
well, it's a different kind of uh, kind of action style. It's not quite the same, and I think Bruce Willis is that trendsetter because he's more comedic and he's more, you know, he's not six foot five. He's not, you know. Yeah, he's I not- think I really think of Bruce Willis and Mel Gibson in the same vein. It's that charming, um, full of charisma. Like you said, they're both short, really funny. Also, do really good action movies. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think of those who. It's like the same way you sort of think of like Stallone and um, uh, Arnie in the same breath. I think of I think of Willis and and um, Gibson in the same breath. You know, because they sort of, they're twinned in my mm. mind. It's those same. It's th- that era. I, d- I just find I don't think there's anybody after that who really has that same feeling. That same, as you say, Will Smith. Yeah, he's bankable. But I think it's a different kind of action star to, to what those four names that we've just mentioned are. I don't know. I think Will Smith. I think Will Smith is is definitely in that ilk. He's funny. He does action really well. I mean, obviously, he's fallen off a lot lately. But they all do eventually, don't they? All action stars. You like, there's only so many times you can see someone save the world. You know what I mean? I think Will. I think I think Will Smith. I think Will Smith gets it. I think he. I think he's. He, He's very similar. Charming, good looking, funny. He's very tall though, I think, Will Smith. He's, he's a big fella. Unlike yeah. unlike uh, Willis on British Hill's a short ass. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's about 5'10. Yeah, it's not that short, I suppose. Yeah. But compared to what we're used to seeing, mm. he's How tall's the rock? He's a he's a big fella. The rock's six five. He's a big lad. He's six five. He's six yeah. five. You know, he's he's come from pro, he's come from pro wrestling where yeah, they're, somebody they're who's six big, somebody who's six foot is considered a small guy. Is that right? That's yeah. a short wrestler. Like yeah. it's it's ridiculous. That's even crazy. even like The Rock is not considered a tall guy in pro wrestling. In wrestling terms, he's like your average height. That's Whereas crazy. everybody from that Attitude Era late nineties mm. who weren't Hulk Hogan, weren't Randy Savage, who how, were... How tall's Hulk? Hulk was 6'7". Really? Yeah. Probably, he probably still is. I mean, it's so difficult right. to tell because he tells so many lies. <laughs> but he's about 6'7". He's, he's a bit of a fibber, is he? Yeah. yeah. It, well, he was apparently, he was going to be the drummer for Metallica. <laughs> I've heard yeah. that, actually. Yeah, you yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, Couldn't if, be worse than Lars. <laughs> I mean, you could, it's Hulk Hogan. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Lars is a terrible drummer. <laughs> that's a different uh, podcast so um yeah, fascinating that's interesting yeah so i do i think is i do take your point i do i know what you mean there is there is there is a the action star era that basically started to fade by the by the mid 90s and it has little little pockets of renaissance every now and then um you'll get the odd movie but that that golden era I take your point. I think Willis is the last of those to come through. Got in just towards the end of it, yeah, just, just, as just it at the beginning kinda... of the peak. I think. I think you could like Die Hard is like the, is like that. It's it's the mid but beginning of the peak, like that late eighties, like, all the way through to the mid nineties. You get so many. A lot of them are sequels. We get so many action movies mm. through the late eighties. I think Willis rides in just at the peak of it, and I think you're right. I think that makes him one of the uh, one of the last ones to come through. Off the top of my head, so yeah, I take your point. Yeah. 
And it's very important to have a uh, strong co-star opposite him playing his wife, Holly Gennaro McLean. I thought you were going to talk about Alan Rickman. <laughs> I was no, like, no. opposite him, his wife. And, He's in uh, four scenes. <laughs> and that yeah. is played by Bonnie Bedelia. Yeah, yeah. She's so, great, actually. She's a really good actress. I think she's fantastic. And mm. I can't think of anything else that I can remember seeing her in. And obviously, I know she's been in other things, but there's nothing else that I can go, oh, that's Bonnie Bedelia. She's in, she's in Die Hard. I've never seen her she's in anything else. also in Die Hard 2. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I... I she's in Die in the Hard... <laughs> She's in, she's in Die Hard to a lot more than Die Hard I mean, one. I know we're going to be speaking about German terrorists in a sec, but you don't have to start doing the accent quite... quite. Uh, I'll get us cancelled, don't yeah. worry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's, uh, she's in the second one a lot more than she's in the first one, I think. Yes, I feel like yeah. she is anyway. Uh, she's great in the second one. Because at, at the end of this one, spoilers, um, she decks the most repugnant 80s news reporter dude in the world. And then in the second one, mm. they're stuck on a plane together, and it's just comedy gold throughout. You know it's, I mean, I, mean I, think, I think she's fantastic in this. And, you know, I said this last time we spoke on, on the Terminator podcast about Michael Bean. And Michael Bean. <laughs> I was, this is I, I was, this I'm not going to lie, I was trying to gloss over that. And you I had think to it's Bean. It's Bean. Right. We spent a lot of that episode going, Bean, Bien, 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 Bien. I think it's just Bean. And you laughed at me for saying Michael Bean. But, what I laughed at was Mr. Bean. Is what I was <laughs> That's a you thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, how, obviously, w- there's other factors in there, but how he wasn't as big of a star Who? as you can... <laughs> Michael Bean. Bien. Uh, yeah. He... Uh, <laughs> Are you going to sabotage this episode as well? I was, uh, I was drinking lemonade the other day. <laughs> Are we just going to do a different soft drink every episode? Uh, I'm a secret I was surpri- lemonade drinker. <laughs> I was surprised at how you obviously had Aliens, you had Terminator, and how those set you on a very, very high trajectory. And there wasn't just, there just wasn't, Anything that really, I mean, I know he was in Tombstone, but that was some years later. And by yeah. that point, he'd fallen off a little would, bit. Yeah, you would have expected a lot more from his career after those two movies. And I, I think yeah. the same goes for Bonnie Bedelia. I mean, I, I, I would see her in the same the same ilk and the same uh, breath as Gina it's, Davis. I do. That's uh, good call, yeah. Like you say, in the second one, she, she really holds some comedy chops as well as sort of playing straight as she does in the first one, it's much more straight mm. role. In the second one, she, she really holds her own in the, the sort of comedy scenes. Um, I think like, I, th- I think about this sometimes, I think like there was a period in like the 80s where it was a lot easier for actors or maybe action stars, as it were, to fall off after their big movies. I'm sure it's probably always been the same, but I feel like, I kind of feel like there was a period in the early noughties where I think where there was just so much money in Hollywood where the actors would, go on to do the movies for money. Like, you'll see, like, I don't know, like, you'll see, like, um, Mark Hamill kind of disappeared from movies after Star Wars. Mm. Harrison Ford went on to be Harrison Ford, you know. Um, and then you'll see, like, the 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 two main dudes from, like, Breaking Bad, uh, the, the younger one, and to a certain degree, Brian Cranston. But you'll see them appear in 
sort of fast, fast, fast and furious kind of esque adjacent movies that look terrible. But you go, well, I'm assuming they paid him millions to be in that. And I think like there's a there's a that thing where you can you can nowadays you can make the money after the big blockbuster film, but your career might not necessarily continue. But at least you'll make the money now. As in the 80s, I feel like you like if your career fell off in the 80s, you nearly always those actors ended up broke. Is how it seems to me. You know, I, mean? I feel like it was a much more cutthroat kind of time in mm. the sense of okay, you've been in, you've been the female lead in Die Hard. Mm. Yeah, okay, you like, need something like, more than that. Whereas, as the, you're saying, the phone's not ringing. So in the 80s, as it were, or 90s, you'd go off and do those sort of B movies. But they they weren't paying you. Whereas now, because there's so much money, you'll go off and do those B movies. But you'll get your money. You'll get a million quid for doing it or something. That's kind of how I. And see because it, of that know. money, those B movies don't look like B movies. They no, look, most of them look alright. Yeah. They look like oh, that might be an alright. How many times have I sat down and watched a Liam Neeson film mm. where I've gone oh, that looks alright, expecting similar sort of things to Taken, mm. and it's just. Taken on a train, <laughs> taken in a car, yeah, taken in the snow, taken the piss. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that one. That's great. Uh, yeah, like Nicolas Cage. I mean, like those movies Nicolas Cage has been doing for the last ten years to pay his tax bill off. Are clearly enough to pay his tax bill off. Yeah, but they're low budget B movies. I, I think like a lot of that is to do with like the the advent of digital filming. So you don't need the endless reels the cameras the film the this that and the other you can pare your production down and still get a quality uh finished product and therefore you can pay to get a director who's maybe not working so much or a director who's on his way up but you can pay the star mm. and you, you know if you've got a good script and you've got a good editor you can sort of like you say it doesn't look like those bad movies used to look in the 80s but yeah i, I kind of feel like we, we may be coming back round to that era where our stars disappeared. Uh, that, um, is it Daisy Ridley who was in the Star Wars movies? Her latest movie came out, and I think it may be, I think it may be the the most unwatched film ever released. I or didn't something. even know she had another film like coming out. Thirty thousand or something. Yeah, yeah, for twenty something or whatever. What you know? was happening five ten years ago, and the money that was being pumped in, it's just not sustainable. At some point. Mm. That's gonna. There's gonna come a point where it has to take a dip because yeah. Well, you've got you've got obviously cinema was king, and then you had v- VHS and Betamax, home video, home video. Um, so that like that fuels those sort of B movies in the eighties and nineties is, is blockbusters and and independent video shops. Then you get a DVD boom. It gets even cheaper. Digital cameras come out, so you can make movies, and you can just print a DVD. I don't need to know how to make a VHS cassette. I can just put a DVD burner on my computer, and there you go, copies of the film. So that sort of distribution arc gets easier. Like, there was a period, doesn't even seem that long ago, like maybe like early noughties to late noughties, where you'd go to supermarkets, and there'd be some random films in the DVD section at supermarkets. And some of them were like student films that somehow got some sort of distribution deal, nice and cheap, with some never-heard-of-before film company. But now the DVD boom's over, and you get the streaming boom, and that pops up. But I feel like each time that happens, the um, the revenue, the money these filmmakers make, drops. And I feel when you once you've got to... Well, we can put your film on some sort of streaming platform that you can get via your Fire Stick on Amazon. 
I don't think you're making much money out of that at that point. You know what I mean? Like you said, I think that's where the, the revenue start to die. It's not sustainable anymore, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I think in a, in a roundabout sort of way, I think what we're kind of saying is that if Bonnie Bedelia was just starting or just got diehard at, say, you know, in the last 10 years, then you'd see five, six, seven different other films yeah. with her playing essentially the same character, mm. very similar kind of script. Yeah. And I, we'd see her a lot more, so she would feel like much more of a movie star. I imagine she was probably up against... I bet... I wouldn't be surprised if she went for a lot of auditions that Michelle Pfeiffer ended up getting the role for. We, we get onto I mean? those would-be castings later, but the names that are in there, mm. she's very much lost in the shuffle there I think I yeah. think if you because I could see her doing that Dangerous Minds film that Michelle Pfeiffer yeah, did where she's a yeah. teacher goes into an under, underprivileged school easy she could do that. she could smash that out of the you park, could see you know Bonnie I mean? Bedelia doing Beetlejuice yeah, you definitely. can see her doing The Fly mm. I think those names are kind of interchangeable unfortunately obviously somebody out of a list of names is going to be towards the bottom of bottom of the list and that's mm. not because of the quality of their performances it's just because studio trends and exactly stuff, so if i if you know in a list of names if i was to say gina davis people go oh yeah i know gina michelle davis Fyfe, michelle Pfeiffer, yeah. i know her if you say bonnie bedelia they go and you go john mcclain's wife and i go oh john mcclain's wife mm -hmm. she becomes known for still a lot of theater <laughs> you know that's usually where they where it goes yeah. It? yeah uh so yeah and i think i th I think she's great in this. You've got uh, Reginald Vell Johnson playing Sergeant Al Powell. Uh, Why don't you wake up and smell what you're shoveling? He's so good. He turns up in the second one as well. They crowbar him into the second one, which is great. Um, he's in he he's in every film I've ever seen him in. He plays a cop. I can't remember. I, I, I didn't. I probably should have looked it up. But yeah, he's he's been in various films playing the same character. I think he turned up. Last thing I saw him in. Um, was Mike and Molly playing a uh, oh, okay, preacher yeah. in Mike and Molly. And I, when I see him, I hear, why don't you wake up and smell what's your He was in Family Matters where he played a cop as well. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, Family Matters, for those who don't know, it was very, from what I know of it, so if, if fans of the show hear this and think, you're getting it all wrong, very similar to Fresh Prince of Bel-Air type programme, okay. centred around, you know, a very... Uh, or more, a much more working class black family. He was a cop, and so and I think it, you know it ran for for quite a few years from uh, eighty nine to ninety eight. So eighty nine to that's a know, very good run. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think as as you say, he's great in this. He he's, is great. Yeah. He's another bit of light humour in there. He's got this. He's got the the I shot a kid storyline in this that whenever I hear him talk about it, it just makes me think of Hot Shots Part 2 and he's like thank you I can kill again <laughs> you know what I'm talking about I think the only thing I mean I, I get that having that backstory it makes sense yeah, yeah, but nice I can't start. see it I can't see him being the bad guy yeah. it, it, okay he's playing the he, he's putting the, the the onus on himself you know mm. I think not reading too much into the situation, but I think most people would would find that understandable yeah, in that situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, he's just such a lovable character. Yeah, but right know? at the end of the film, he manages to kill someone else. Yeah. And he's like, I'm free from not wanting to kill people anymore. And there is, there, there is a really funny uh, interview with uh, Bonnie Bedelia where it's just after everything's gone down and John McClane and Holly Gennaro are embracing. Mm. It's all over. And then all of a sudden, 
John McLean and Sergeant Alan Powell, uh, lock eyes, and that becomes like the bromance love. And, and yeah. <laughs> the Bonnie Bedelia was like, Oh, I thought this was my <laughs> moment, and it's actually theirs. Anti lock braking system. Master cylinder, exhaust manifold, ignition coil. These are just some of the things you can listen to here at Mechanical Moons, the only place to relax for the engineer's mind. Subscribe now to Mechanical Moons. And you could very easily see a buddy cop spin off of John McClane and Al Powell, you know. Yeah. I mean, like I say, they crowbar him into the second one, and it's a delight when he turns up. He's so, he's such a good actor. The character's really good as well. It's, it's, it's the point in the, in the cinema where, he pops up and everybody goes, "Way!" You know, it's that kind yeah, of feeling, isn't yeah. it? Uh, we've got we've got the great Paul Gleason playing uh, Dwayne T. Robinson. Uh, he is the police captain. He's a guy from the Breakfast Club. Don't mess with the ball; you'll get the horns. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, oh yeah. Sorry, I'm with you. Yeah, he is great in this. He yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah. Pl- he plays that that role he to perfection. That yeah, yeah. He is. To, he he plays that that role in pretty much everything I've seen him in. It, it almost feels like he's wearing exactly the same suit in everything I've seen him in. It's the role is so similar. I've got you know? my work suit on. <laughs> it goes for any character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's fantastic. Obviously, we've got Alan Rickman playing Hans Gruber. Oh, so good. And was it Rickman's first film, wasn't it? First film to put in that kind of performance. So good. And, he, you know, he is an actor. He's not a bad guy. He's an actor. He was on. He was doing theatre. His accent's not too bad either. It's a, there's, there's a few moments where it's a little bit, where are the stuns? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's not bad. It slips every now and then, but... And his American accent is quite bad. Yeah. But then he's a, a German, he's an Englishman pretending to be a German doing an American accent. So you've got to forgive him that. And, you know, yeah. Uh, I think he just about gets away with it. He's, just he's about. so good. As far as, as 80s villains go, he did set the bar quite high at that point. Yeah. Though, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's iconic without being, it could be very easy to go in there and play essentially Hammy, you know I mean? him and Robin Hood it's very easy to go in and do that oh, he's so good at that he's, he's good, well over the top though, but it, isn't it? it's very yeah, yeah. I think a lot of a lot of villains at the time would have done that yeah. and I think in this film mm. that's where it starts to venture into B movies how important do you think to the overall perception of this film is Alan Rickman like because we talk about it being it's Bruce Willis's action movie Dead or Dead, and it, all those things are true I think it, it's it's the the villain of the piece. The casting of Alan Rickman is what elevates this. Not solely, but if that casting's off, are we still talking about this movie thirty six years later? You know, every protagonist is only as good as its villain. Yeah, if you've got a villain who's not interesting, you know, essentially, 
you look at those Olympus has fallen films, mm. those types of films where cardboard cut out villains and you know yeah, Gerard yeah. Butler's very uh, he's charismatic in his own way, but he's got nothing to I mean, how play many, off. How many of. villains have there been now, including in Die Hard sequels? where the villain is some sort of tech genius who's been wronged by the government, who's seeking revenge. I see that popping... Basically, Elon Musk with a grudge <laughs> popping up everywhere, you know? Um, including in... Is it 4.0, I think? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is... Is it Timothy Oliphant playing the villain in that? Yeah, Timothy Oliphant. It Oliphan. is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And Timmy, Timothy Oliphant, he's, he's good, isn't it? I but like it's, 4.0. it's that element of... Mm. Again, very, very shrewd casting. I know... I know some people were a bit sceptical. Again, not... I mean, they've put a lot of... A lot of... You know, considering it's a 20, 28 million budget film, mm. they've put a lot of... Uh, faith. A lot of faith in their in their two main roles. Mm. I mean, you could argue, okay, well, if we're going to have Bruce Willis, then we need to have... We need a name. We need a name in that villainous role, or vice versa. Mm. Well, we're not going to have a villainous name, We're gonna, but we need to have... You know, so yeah, it's always fascinating to me when when casting choices for a movie. Obviously, they had no idea how big this movie was going to be, and obviously, even less so from the opening weekend. But like you say, that there isn't that drive to have a name in there because that's what Hollywood do. We need a name. We want a name. Now, Bruce Willis wasn't unheard of, but he wasn't an action star. So you like, well, who's who's a good go-to villain at this point? You know, and there's oh, it's this unknown bloke, English bloke from from England, English bloke from England. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I don't. I think you use a few too many words. Was there. he English right now? <laughs> I thought he was German. But, um, yeah, this unknown theatre actor from England. Um, because we're going to pick him because he's the right person for the role. Like, they cast, where are the stars in this movie? Apart from Willis, who, like, again, he wasn't that was, unheard it, was, of. it was all afterwards. The real stardom exactly. came afterwards. And it's, I know, that stuff like that fascinates me because it infuriates me when you can tell that they've just crowbarred a star into a movie. Bums on seats, laddie, and all that sort of stuff, you know? And I think, you know, we're going through the cast, and I think one thing that's perhaps would be apparent to any listeners is that this, every step of the way, this had all the credentials of being a massive failure. Mm. It's a sequel to a film starring Frank Sinatra, who's not going to be cast in this particular role because it's it's an action film. Mm. So you're not going to get the fans of that film coming along. We're going to put Bruce Willis, who's known for his comedic chops, on a TV show. TV acting is very different to movie acting. Yeah, Bruce, Bruce Willis, who is probably most famous as that bloke your mum secretly fancies from that TV programme. Yeah. He's your action star. Yeah. What, that bloke who keeps releasing records of under the boardwalk. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, not, you know what I mean? He's, it, he's not an action star. This is going to sound really demeaning to Bruce Willis. Yeah. But he's probably, he wasn't perhaps, obviously TV in America is slightly different to TV over here, but if we were to put it into an, an equivalent of his stardom at the time, you're probably looking at somebody like Shane Ritchie. <laughs> like, I, it's, do you yeah, know? the American version, so it's not quite as tacky, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's that he's, lovable rogue. He's he's a, a middle-aged hunk. Yeah. From that, that romantic comedy with Shibble, Sybil Shepherd in, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's an and unlikely so If we try and think of Die Hard with yeah. somebody like Shane Ritchie, yeah. 
if you heard about this film coming out in the next two years, you know what, it's an action film, big budget action film, Shane Ritchie starring in it. Do you know what? The uh, the closest equivalent would probably be Colin Farrell, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Who was in Bally Kiss Bally Angel. Angel, yeah. Just like fairly middling nothing TV programme on ITV, I think, you know, in the early noughties, and then went, just went, oh, I'm off to Hollywood now. It's like, boom. Yeah, right, that, you know he's probably I mean? more equivalent than Shane Rich. <laughs> <laughs> but I but, get your point, though. Yeah. It, is, it would have been quite jarring, and, I assume, you know. And in speaking of setting things up to fail, mm. we've got Hans Gruber as the main villainous role, but every action film or, you know, takes the James Bond approach usually where you have the main villain and then you have the, what I call, if it was a game, it's the sub-boss. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. The, it's the, the, the henchman. head henchman. Yeah, and the yeah. head, head, head henchman yeah. is played by Alexander Goodenough. That's the dude with the long blonde hair, yeah. He plays Carl, yeah, the That's guy so with long good. blonde hair, yeah, yeah. who is a ballerina. Is he really? He's a ballerina and he was known for his work in ballet. And so yeah. you hear that and you go, how is that going to work? Mm. Surely that's not going to work, mm. but it works. Yeah. Perhaps probably because you know he, you don't know he's a ballerina going in. Yeah. Uh, but That's interesting. It just like sets everything about this film feels like it's got all the, all the remnants of failure mm. and somehow out of the ether it pulls out this this fantastic cracking film mm. that, that transcends its its um the era it was made and and possibly yeah, even the genre it I was think, made in depending I think on probably what, the what you only think it is, you know? proper star in this and even then I wouldn't say he was a proper star but the closest to it is you've got Robert Davy in a cameo role playing uh, Big Johnson <laughs> as the FBI agent who comes in right yeah uh, yeah he's bloke from stuff he's bloke yeah, from 80s stuff he yeah, was yeah. in the living daylights uh, sorry, yeah. License to Kill. Yeah, 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 yeah. He plays he the, Bond plays movie, the yeah. main villain and then Benicio Del Toro is the sub-villain in that. Uh, yeah, because he's like, ah, it's just like back in Nam. I don't know, I wasn't born. You yeah, know, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, he's bloke from stuff. He's, he's in a lot of 80s stuff. That's yeah. right, yeah, yeah. 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 So... It's uh, funny because I was watching the sequel yesterday, Die Hard, Die Hard 2, and it's got a uh, pre-fame Robert Patrick in... Who is even fast, more, even more Terminator Two esque than he is in Terminator <laughs> Two? It's so weak. It's only a couple of years between it. It's like nineteen ninety. And is the sequel? What I was, I mean, I, I still think Die Hard Two's a perfectly passable sequel. It, yeah, it's, it's exactly how I would sum it up. Yeah. However, what I was saying about casting the wrong guy in the villainous role, mm. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But the dude who plays the main villain in Die Hard Two, mm-hmm. who's bloke got from stuff. Yeah. bloke from stuff, mm-hmm. pretty sure he's in Bill and Ted's. Uh, he is in Bill and Ted, but he, yeah, he's painted yeah. all white in that. Yeah, uh, he—he's—he's he's a great character actor. He's in some. He's in. Sorry, I'm still smiling at the fact that I, <laughs> I was like, he—he's he, in Bill and Ted. That's uh, all right, yeah. but he's not the main villain. He's—he doesn't have that. How do you feel about um, Jeremy Irons in the third though? Jeremy Irons is just a sideways. He's like it's Ger- I, I, I feel buy. like a lot of people get Alan Rickman or American people, American fans perhaps mm. get Alan Rickman and Jeremy Irons mixed up because yeah. they're very similar. Yeah, I could buy Jeremy Irons as the villain apart from the fact that he spends it wearing his little grey vest throughout the entire movie. I find it so distracting. It's like a vest off, it's, isn't it? It's really it's like skin tight grey vest. It's like, He's what? like McLean's going to do it in a vest. Well, I'm going to do it in a vest as well. Irons had done There's like, a lot more homoerotic subtext. I, I feel like, there, I feel like, isn't like isn't Jerry it? Irons had done like ten push-ups and went, "Yep, got it." Yeah. <laughs> Bring on the vest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I. Th- 
you know, I think that's the only thing for two for me that kind of lets it down is you haven't got that the same level of actor because I think that's the importance of mm. that role. I, I love two. Two's, two's a bit bloated uh, as a movie. It's a little bit. It's the pacing slightly off, but it's could, a great sequel. You could tell that they went okay. We just need to. We need to top it a little bit. Mm. You know, so that's where it becomes a little bit more over the top in places. Mm. You know, the the jetpack scene or jetpack, but the ejector seat scene. Yeah, where, yeah. You know, it's a little bit kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge at the camera type thing. But it's what I find fascinating about these movies. Though, and again, this is that same old subject we come back to about action movies and special effects. The special effects uh, was, they would have been, what, visual effects, I suppose they would have been called back then. The, 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 the peril or the danger that they're in is so, like, compared to modern times, would we consider, it just, it wouldn't be enough. Like in the sequel where he almost gets run over by the plane, the peril is he's got to move a grate off of him. So CGI or visual, real visual effects needed at that point. But it, it's enough tension for the movie. He rolls out the way just in time, or, or um, when I think it's the third one. The one they blow up, they blow up the building at the beginning of the third one, and it's just a building that explodes. You see a couple of cars turn over, and it, it's amazing to watch the car chase through in the third one through the um, park. Is isn't overblown? He's not jumping over a million things, and you know, as it would be now because you can do that now. And yet somehow those special effects are enough when it when you know it's real, when you know it's in front of you. At most, it's a model. When it's a tangible thing, it's enough. that The sense of excitement you get from that when they blow up a train or when they do this, that, and the other, or when he um, swings with the in this film when he's got the, um, the hose oh, around yeah. him and he goes, that, it's enough. It's like an iconic moment in a movie that I saw them do on Mythbusters. I think it was the first episode of Mythbusters I ever saw. They were doing... Oh, no, 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 it was different. It was it was like Mythbusters, but it had the dude, uh, Robert Llewellyn, from Crichton, from Red Dwarf. And he was doing a thing about movies, can it be done in real life? And he was doing the Die Hard thing. Like, that's how iconic that is. That movie got made now, they'd be like, well, that's, that's not exciting enough. You know, can he do that from a helicopter whilst punching people in the face? And they're like, you know... It would be too and much. And everything's on fire. Yeah, everything's yeah. on... Yeah, everything's big and da 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 But... That the simplicity of it in it wasn't simple to do at the time, but comparatively it looks simple now adds to it. It it make, it grounds it in a sense of reality that modern movies um have lost because they when you have the ability to do as we always say on this, uh necessity is the mother of invention, you know. When you have the ability as they do now to do anything your mind can think of, sometimes you need to just pare it back. It doesn't need to be such I mean, these films were considered ludicrous when they came out, but, you, you know, it doesn't need to be... By today's standards, they're, they're really, fairly... It's, yeah, it's subtle. Re- <laughs> I mean, who'd have thought at yeah. the time, you'd probably be saying in one, you know, 40 years' time, people would be saying, oh, that's that's an element of realism there. Yeah, so like you, you know, say, when he shoots out the plane in the ejector seat, that was like a big stunt. That was like a big moment of the mm. film. And you're like, now it's like, what does he do? He just pulls an ejector seat, gets out. All right, can we have him do something else? You know, it just, we just keep yeah. going and going. Would you it, like you know? to know where the idea for the fire hose off the top of the building came from? I would love to. Yeah. So it came from a Charlie Chaplin-esque 1920s, 1930s slapstick okay. silent film. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but essentially he jumps off the top of a bit or out of a window with a fire hose. Was it by Harold Lloyd by any chance? Might have been. 
that sounds vaguely familiar. So Harold Lloyd's famous for doing like stunts yeah. So I'm going to go. Like I'm going to go with that. Uh, and it's very very similar. He jumps out of a window with a fire hose attached to him. The actual the actual uh, metal thing reel. that it that it reels yeah. around. Yeah, reel that gets caught on the edge of a window. Very much similar mm. in in this. So it's weird. It's weird where you get your inspiration yeah, yeah, yeah. from. Yeah, I think Harold Lloyd. Uh, if it was indeed him, famous for like he was the silent era Tom Cruise doing my own stunts kind of guy. You know, I mean, he mm. invented a lot of visual trickery and stunts and things like that for movies. Like, obviously, weren't that many people before him, so he got. <laughs> but someone has to be first, didn't they? You know. Well, should should we get to that time in every one of our episodes where we start looking at some potential? <laughs> Would be casting. I was literally going to talk about Bob Hoskins. <laughs> we get to that point he's in every not on, episode. He's not on this list. He's not in this list, and it's an eighties film. I know he wasn't considered for the villain. He was his his agent was on holiday at the time. <laughs> so in the in the role of John McClane, we have the possibility of Richard Gere. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, not not for me, but fair enough. We have the possibility of Don Johnson yeah, of Miami yeah, Vice. Yeah. We have the possibility of Richard Dean Anderson, who is the main dude in Stargate, the f- TV show. Oh, MacGyver. Film. MacGyver, that's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not he'd, the, pro- he'd probably be all right. It? Yeah. I don't think we'd still be talking about it 36 years later, but he, I think he'd be all right in that, maybe. Nick Nolte? <laughs> Nick Nolte. Nah. I think Nick Nolte oh. by this point was probably just. Dis- Getting a little bit too old. I mean, what are you talking? Uh, Forty-eight hours with Eddie Murphy's around this time, uh, isn't it? That's early early eighties, huh? Oh, so is it another is it 81, forty-eight 82, hours? I want to see, and I think another. Mm. Uh, where the sequels go? Mm, this is know. this is Cape Fear sort of time, I believe. What with De Niro? That's nineties, nineties, isn't it? Um, I mean, he's both down and out in Beverly Hills era. Nick Nolte, then isn't I don't it? think he's right for the part. In, in general. He's good in Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Have you ever seen it? I feel like he'd be a much Such more... A good movie. I haven't seen it. Oh, but I feel like, I feel like he'd be watching. more grizzled in this yeah, and a bit more... Nah, 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 oh, this nah, job. Nah, you know. Nah, nah, nah. I like Nick Nolte. Um, yeah, I'm going to go watch Down and Out in Beverly Hills after this. <laughs> no, I'm going to say new. Yeah, and, yeah. and this next name is, is kind of what I was getting at in the terms of the the action star of the 80s, apart from Schwarzenegger and Stallone, who were the big ones. Mm-hmm. But you had, you had guys like Tom Beringer, who was was a big 80s action star. I've forgotten all about him, yeah. But Platoon, he very, yeah. very, you know, in the 90s hit, and you didn't hear of him. Did disappear, didn't he? Yeah, he not in big budget films. to sync without a trace. You know, yeah, yeah. He, does, he does crop up in, uh, in Inception. He's pretty good in that. Does he really? Yeah, yeah. He plays, uh, he plays the uncle... Of Killian uh, Murphy's character, Fisher. Oh, wow, buddy. Yeah, better do's. I always think he's just the bloke, he's the bloke from Platoon to me. Bloke like from Platoon. Johnny Depp's the substitute. movie and Charlie Sheen and that. Yeah. yeah. Sniper. That, you know, that... It's a different movie. It's a very different movie with... I, don't, it's, I, think, I think it becomes I'm more... not sure I've seen Tom Beringer do, like, comedy sides I'm sure he has I don't think I've seen it I don't think that those comedy elements would have come through there I Mm. think they would have gone much more straight laced tried to mimic what Stallone and Schwarzenegger are doing 
you know, yeah. it would be much more like Commando, just in a tower, tower <laughs> block, you know. <laughs> it feels much more brutal, yeah. 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 Uh, so, so it'd be more like the Dread movie then. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Ryan, Actually, yeah, I, I imagine him doing it a lot like um, Carl Urban, to be fair. Do you know what I mean? Charles Bronson, John yeah. McClane. Yeah! Because that's what John McClane's so mission have his is attached. <laughs> it's Movember! <laughs> Michael Madsen? Michael Madsen? Really? I mean, I... I yeah, I guess he would have been old enough. Yeah, he's got the same. It's because he's not really famous until like Pulp Fiction, is he? Or Reservoir Dogs? No, sorry. Reservoir Dogs, which is what ninety two. Ninety two, yeah. So it's not that far removed. Actually, it's only four years. Michael, I think Michael Madsen. Yeah, he's kind of. I don't want to say he's like Bruce Willis, cause, but he's sort of cut from that. He's that brooding, tall, dark, handsome yeah. kind of action kind of dude. I feel like less so these days. I feel like with Michael Madsen, and this is going to sound really disrespectful, and I don't, because he's a good actor, I feel like the best you see of Michael Madsen is in a still image. He's a, he's very much a, you know, for lack of a better term, a poster boy, in the sense of you put him on a movie poster and it looks cool. I'd it's love to just, see him do, like, some film noir stuff, man. Do you know what I mean? Like, the I 1950s detective, like 30s detective sort of thing. Something He's got that look. He mean, should be smoking a cigarette and uh, talking about dames. You know what I mean? Very similar, if you were to make it today, to like Sin City. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, Bruce Willis did a... He did Bruce a Willis take... Bruce Willis is in Sin City. He is in Sin City, isn't he? He did a take on... Oh, my mind's gone blank. It's that samurai film that they, that Clint Eastwood turned into a cowboy film. High Plains Drifter is the I can't th- I can't remember what the samurai film is based on. But Bruce Willis did one last is it Last Man Standing, where it's nineteen fifties bootlegging, nineteen thirties bootlegging kind of film. Yes, film yeah, yeah, I, yeah, it, yeah. I think it was not well received. Um, but, you know, those sort of films, that sort of film, like, uh, you know, um, Two Jakes kind of movies that um, Jack Nicholson yeah. did. L.A. Confidential. I'd like to see Mike, Michael Madison do one of those sort of movies, L.A. Confidential. I'd like to see thing, Michael you know. Madison do that as well. What did I say? Michael Madison. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like That's... an estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a Madison. Sounds like a, a, a make of baloney. Okay. Do you want a very different film? Go Let's put Pacino as uh, John Whoa. McClane. You know? No, fuck, no way, man. Just isn't going to no, work as well. No, no. Oh, 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 now I got a machine oh. gun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that was pretty good. I know. Thank you. Thank good, you very yeah. much. Oh, oh, oh. Ooh, ah. uh, obviously, we've got the names like Sylvester Stallone. No. We've got Harrison Ford. We've got Mel Gibson. We've got Clint Eastwood. We've got Burt Reynolds. Hang on. Say that again. Harrison Ford could do it. Different film, but that would be anyway. But yeah, Harrison Ford could do it. Mel Gibson could do it. With his finger. You know. Mel Gibson could obviously do it. It's essentially, Die Hard 3 is a lethal weapon film that got made into Die yeah, Hard. Yeah, that's right. They repurposed it, yeah. didn't they? Yeah. So it fits, like, you know, it's, so it's it's a very easy easy transition to make. Mm. Clint Eastwood, very different film. Late grizzled. 80s, he would Clint be a grizzled Eastwood. veteran of a cop, you know. 
I don't know. Cause when did he do Deadpool? That's that's early nineties with Charlie mm. Sheen, and I kind of felt like he was no disrespect, but getting a bit old to play a tough guy cop at that point. I don't. I don't. I, no, 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 no. I and then Burt Reynolds. I mean, I love Burt Reynolds. I really do. But like, I like like seventies, eighties era Burt Reynolds, late eighties, maybe still, maybe he's still got it. Smoking the Bandit era. I mean, it's just a comedy at that point, though, isn't it? It's it's more comedy than action. So, uh, only one other potential casting on this list for the role of Hans Gruber. Okay. And that name is Sam Neill. Oh, right, yeah. I mean, I think he'd, he'd do a good job of it, I reckon, yeah. I think, I think what's important, as I say, what's important with Hans Gruber, and there was an interview with Alan Rickman where he said... You know, he didn't play the villain. He mm. plays a man who who wants certain things and is willing to do certain things to get it. Hans, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that line was ad libbed by the actor. Really. And so there's so there's good. a slightly quizzical look from Alan Rickman, and that's legit because yeah, he wasn't I, expecting I it. Threw him a touch there. Uh, yeah. Hans, baby. So in the role of Holly Gennaro. Mm-hmm. You know, we mentioned earlier, and a lot of these names we've kind of mentioned in the same breath. We've got Linda Hamilton. Yeah. We've got Glenn Close. <laughs> I can't see it, but okay. we got Gina Davis. Of course. She could do anything. We've got Deborah Winger. Deborah, yeah, she'd be all right. This name, I feel it, there's not enough meat on the bone for, for Meryl Streep. <laughs> you know? She'd be peeling an orange in every scene. Yeah. 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 Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, we mentioned uh, earlier. Yes, you could do it. It's not enough. I actually don't think it's enough for Michelle Pfeiffer to be getting on with. But she'd be good at it. Goldie Horn. No, I can't see that, to be honest. Sally Field. No, I can't see that either. Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis is a great actress. Actor. I don't think there's enough for her to do, though. Yeah, you kind of if you're going to have a name, I, like I can't that. picture Jamie Lee Curtis and Bruce Willis as married either. I don't know why. I just can't see it. I'm trying to, and it it's too jarring. They're just two different jigsaw pieces, aren't they? Because yeah. I mean, she together. plays Arnold, Arnie's wife in True Lies. Yeah, I can buy that for some reason, yeah. but I just can't see. I feel like she'd be too tall. Have you heard? Is this? she tall? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think is so. That me, is that my chair squeaking I, or yours? It's your chair. Is it me? I'm not moving, so it's your chair. <laughs> your... <laughs> I do apologise. Uh, yeah, have you heard the story in True Lies about the uh, the sexy dance scene and Schwarzenegger with the tape recorder? I know the scene, yeah. Yeah, so they were filming that, and you know he drops the tape recorder mm. when she starts getting a bit uh, seductive. Mm. That, that, was, that wasn't meant to happen. That was Arnold Schwarzenegger watching Jamie Lee Curtis being like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't expecting that and he drops and apparently James Cameron's like, what are you doing? Don't drop it. You've ruined the shot. And then they ended up using it. So. Is that right? Uh, James there Cameron shouting at his actors. That doesn't sound like James Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> Read into that what you will. Uh, Carrie Fisher. All oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can see that. Kelly McGillis. Yeah, I could see that actually. Yeah, and Kirsty Alley. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Kirsty Alley again. She's she was um, an amazing comedian or comedic actor. 
Um, I don't really remember seeing her in anything serious, so it's hard for me to see her playing it straight, you know. Yeah, it's very difficult when somebody's so known for comedic roles mm. that, you know, essentially it's Jim Carrey in the number 23 or The Truman Show, isn't it? Mm. Where it's like, oh, he's not bouncing off the walls being crazy. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like I've got I've got a, a segment here which I feel like could be a recurring segment in later episodes. I honestly think it could be a disaster. So I thought you were about to say. So you where my head's at, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so would you like to hear some foreign title translations of dialogue? Oh, only all day long. So. <clears throat> let's have a look. Some of these are just quite good movie titles. And some of them are hilarious. So in Spain, the title was translated into Crystal Jungle. <laughs> I don't think that's a too bad movie I title. I got to Crystal Jungle, though. You know, it's very similar to, like, like uh, Urban Jungle, that kind of, that rhetoric yeah, there. Yeah. They're in a built... Uh, yeah, OK, well... In French, it was... Uh, a, <laughs> Le petit... <laughs> <laughs> it was going off the same sort of le, themes. Le morte. <laughs> Are you trying to offend every nationality? <laughs> That's uh, my French accent. Okay. Le morte. <laughs> so in French, it was going off the same same sort of uh, lines, and it was Piège de Cristal. You're, you're at it now. Yeah. I'm just saying the worst. There's no crystals in this film. I'm finding this quite annoying. Well, it's the, I'm guessing it's the the look of the, the Nakatomi Plaza as it glistens in the sun, looks like a crystal in the pale moonlight, which is actually just foxes. It's a, <laughs> it's, the, it's a fox building, isn't it? It's owned by 20th Century Fox. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. You look like that <laughs> sentence like it was about to fall apart quite spectacularly then. <laughs> in Poland, it was... It became the glass trap. Mm. That so, actually makes sense, to be fair. Yeah. So those, all of those titles, obviously, the glass trap, moving away from uh, dying hard. Yeah, uh, the Hungarian, <laughs> the Hungarian title is. <laughs> it's called "Give Your Life Expensive." Is how it translates. <laughs> And the title of the sequel is Your Life is Even More Expensive. And the third part is Life is Always Expensive. That's amazing. Because I was sitting there wondering what they did for the sequels. Because obviously you get Die Hard, Die Harder with a vengeance. Good day to die hard and all that. So they just stuck with the expensive theme. Yeah. Yeah. And then in Finnish, the movie is translated to Only Over My Dead Body. (laughs) Which doesn't have the same kind of zip and, and no, wit to it, does it? It sounds a bit laboured and like a bit... Sounds like a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like a comedy in a Death Becomes Her kind of vein, which also starred Bruce Willis. So, those are some foreign movie titles. I quite like that. And let's go on to some trivia now. Some trivia. So, the, the perhaps, nice. well, definitely the most iconic line in the film, but perhaps the most, or one of the most iconic lines in movie history. Mm-hmm. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Yeah. That line 
uh, dubbed to uh, Kimo Sapi in the television version. That is correct. Would you like to know where that came from? I know where that came from. Would you like to inform our viewers? It, it was in the opening uh, from Roy Rogers. Absolutely, yeah. Roy Rogers. Yeah, Roy Rogers TV a, show where he played a cowboy, I think. Or yeah, fifties yeah. cowboy. Was it a kids show? Wasn't it or I, family? I, show? I hear it mentioned a lot. It's definitely a, an American um, classic. I don't think it really um, took over. And it yeah. almost came out very, a bit differently in its uh, pronunciation, mm. apparently. So John McTiernan thought the line should be, yippee-tee-yay. Yippee-tee-yay. Like, like, I'm guessing you say it quickly. yay like that, if yeah. you say it a bit quicker. But obviously you can only really say yippee-tee-yay in that, in that staggered mm. kind of way. So yippee-tee-yay. Bruce Willis argued that it should be Yippie Kaye, mm. and apparently they tried both versions to see which tr- uh, sounded better, and the no. now famous Yippie Kaye one. Mm. And I suppose if it was been if it had been Yippie Ta, we would be saying, "Ah, oh, Yippie Kaye sounds weird." Yeah. So it's that the thing I read. I forget what it was I read now, but it had something to do with um, Mc- McTiernan. Is that how you pronounce it? John McTiernan. Yeah. McTiernan. Yeah. Yeah. McTiernan. And Bruce Willis both coming from like wherever it was, the Midwest or something like that. It was some it was something they had in common. I, like Yippie Kaye. It's, it's I think there's a song Yippie Kaye, Yippie Kaye, or something like that. But yeah, from the Roy Rogers thing. The whole Roy Rogers was from their hometown or something like that, I read somewhere. And uh but that now I say it out loud sounds like it's probably not true. You know what I mean? Would you like to know how much Bruce Willis was paid for this movie? Oh, I would. So, let me see. It's $28 million movie. $28 million. $28 million. Mason Verger is back um, on the episode. Sam, with some authority. Um, two million. Double it and then some. Oh, he got paid quite a chunk then. He got paid five million. Oh, right on. And apparently, according to his agent, that was... I, I don't quite understand how this works, but apparently that was that was their, the agent's way of cementing Bruce Willis in this role. His words, not mine. Don't know what he means by that. No. Five, we said earlier... Maybe you know, Bruce Willis didn't want to do it, and they're like, I'm going to give you five million. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> My understanding is quite keen to become an action star. But I don't know. Maybe. Five million, that's more than I thought he would have got. But then I suppose he was a star. He was a TV star. It was star, the highest right? yeah. an actor had been paid for a movie role at that at that time, five that's million. Interesting. So very quickly on. So was his agent saying this This made it seem like he was legit. Do you know what I mean? He, he got that, that money, that makes it seem could have legit. Been, could have been, know? yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, I, I don't understand how that works from a movie producer perspective or a studio perspective mm. of going, so, so sorry, your your way of convincing us that he's legit is us paying him more money. Uh, <laughs> but... Dress, was it dress for the job you want, not the one you've yeah. got, I suppose, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that only really works from a personal point of view, though. Uh, it's not like I've dressed for the job I want, so therefore pay me more than you would uh, pay yeah, the no. But yeah, uh, I, I, I guess it's that sort of like I, I'm assuming it's that sort of thing where you're like, well, it must be right because he got all this money yeah. for it. It's doubling you down. Know, it's and, that you sort know. of like don't look over here, look over here kind of thing. You know? Yeah, but, yeah. I suppose from an audience perspective, yeah, they go, you go, they paid him five million. 
he must be good in this. You know, at the very least, I'm intrigued. Let's go and see it to see how it turned out. Mm. Unfortunately, it didn't quite work for the opening weekend of only six hundred one thousand, as we mentioned earlier. But do you think? Do you think though? You you've just been paid. You're you're a big TV star. You want to be a movie star, but you've just been paid five million dollars, and your movie tanks. Obviously, this didn't tank, but. As a as a human beings, you think you'd be like, oh, I'm all right. <laughs> do well, you there's, think it there's would got really to be an element of like, you, you I don't know? care how the movie does. I've I've got my I'm, I'm rolling in the Benjamins. I'm rich. I've got the know? number one TV show on CBS or something. Because who I mean? uh, who was it? I think it was Russell Crowe. No, it wasn't Russell Crowe. It was somebody. I'm just trying to think. What, oh yes, it was Russell Crowe in Gladiator. Mm. He, when he was being asked to do it, he was said. He said uh, they offered him however much, and he said, "No, no, 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 I don't want that much. Just promise me." I think it was like half a percent of the of the takings at the box office, and they were like, "Okay, then, mm. fine, that's easy. Tuppence, you know. Don't have to pay him that." Much. I think he, he got a standard fee. Mm. And then it turned out to be one of the biggest movies of the year and the royalties and everything. And he's now, from that one film alone, mm. they're paying him so much. I haven't watched Gladiator in so long. It's, I remember it being such a good movie. So I could understand from that perspective, if, if you're Bruce Willis, I could understand that, you know, the studio the thing going... Is you've then got to get your money out of the studio, which, as we know, is they're notorious for just lying about how much money... You, a movie's made. I mean, we, I think we've mentioned this before. Yeah, yeah. It, well, Batman, 1989 Batman, apparently has never made a profit. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Jog on. I suppose yeah, it right. kind of depends on, like, yeah, they can lie about it, but if it's, like, so obvious that it's making money... I mean, I you think know. 1989 Batman is well-known yeah, like, for making a lot of money, the, but the, it, according the, to the balance They can sheet, lie it's about never, it, yeah, but yeah. it's like... Uh-huh. Yeah, but if you're trying to get your money out of the studio, you know what I mean? But, uh... But yeah, so I, I could understand that perspective from the studio doing that with Bruce Willis because he's not a proven commodity. But to put five million straight up and go, here's your money, here's what you're getting paid for this movie. Mm. And this is what I was saying earlier about. At what point do you think you had discussions about his rubber feet? <laughs> Jeez, like I do, but I reckon I, that was I, in I the suffer, contract. I you suffer know? with really cold feet. <laughs> I'm going to need some sort. He basically invented, you know, those annoying shoes that you see people wear when they go running, that their, their toes are Yeah, out. yeah. Those no-drop shoes, or whatever they're called. I have to query anybody who buys a pair of them. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. query yeah. them. I reckon uh, invented by Bruce Willis. It br- yeah. re- invented by Bruce Willis. Maybe he was offered $5 million and $30, and they went, mm, can you take the 30 off, because I need a pair of rubber shoes to wear throughout the film. Do they like painted fake? Toe hair on <laughs> it was the, uh, to be fair, it's, it's before the days of HD, so I think they got away with it. If they did put hairs on rubber feet, they, first of all, I would like to know who the guy who's responsible for that job. I'm telling you, they would have made him as realistically as human. Do you think they took molds of his feet? Do you think they were like, Oh, you've got a bit of a yellow nail on, on that toe? <laughs> They've got pic- there's just pictures up on a wall of Bruce Willis's feet, and they're going, right, okay, that needs a little bit more magenta in that just to bring yeah. out the skin tone. I'm amazed it doesn't stand out more than it does in the movie. Like it must be, it's just because you don't see his feet that often. I think. Just, yeah, the only only point is like, it's like how he's got snippets, aren't feet shaped shoes on. <laughs> like, how does that not look more ridiculous? You know what I mean? 
Because he must have had some sort of cushioning, padding in there. Otherwise, that's what it's for, and it's to cushion yeah, his feet, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> how do they not look like hobbits' feet throughout the entire film? A little painted on. Oh, he's got a bunion there. Just paint that on. A little bit of cracked, cracked skin around the heel. You know what I mean? Because someone would have had to make them. They would have had to make them as realistic as human, humanly possible. Man. Meanwhile, there's a there's a special effects guy in Hollywood mm. who goes around films and says, "Do you know I made Bruce Willis's feet in Die Hard? <laughs> I'm the guy behind that." Do you think someone still has this? Rubber feet somewhere. Somebody's got to in a have case. Like that's <laughs> what are they? Like, <laughs> Bruce Willis's rubber feet in a glass case. <laughs> a little certificate of authenticity. Tons of movie you know I mean? memorabilia. You've got Conan's sword. You've got <laughs> you've got uh, Luke Skywalker's lightsaber. You've got a model of the of the Death Star, yeah. and you've got Bruce Willis's yeah. feet. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon he's probably like with a collection of like he's already got like Spock's ears. <laughs> He's, he's just Hobbit's trying to feet. create a full human, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. He's got Arnie's hand from like the, the head from Poltergeist. <laughs> like all I bit. need, all I need to complete the set is the is the groin of Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> and I'm set. Brundle's <laughs> family. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is one of the genuine fallacies that Brundle puts in the uh, in the cupboard. We got the... some weird <laughs> Hollywood Hollywood real life version of Frank Doctor Frankenstein this... trying to create a full person out of movie memorabilia. This is the fallacy used by Mark Wahlberg in Boogie Nights. <laughs> <laughs> this is the third boob from Total Recall. <laughs> This is Lance Henriksen's hand from Aliens. <laughs> Bruce would still think Bruce Willis's feet would still look out of place even amongst all of that. Though. Yeah. I want to know if they were modelled on Bruce Willis's feet. I'm going I'm to do a deep dive on those rubber feet and find out where they are. So stay tuned, everyone. <laughs> when you, well, I think it's one of those things, once you notice it, it sticks out like a... Sore foot, nah. not like a sore. Thumb. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I when I was watching this the other day, I was proper trying to watch for his feet, and I only ever noticed it like at one other, other than the famous one you see, where you can actually see the top of the boot because it comes out from under his his trousers. Um, I only ever noticed it at one other point. You said, oh, no, there's his rubber feet because they do look a bit big, you know. What I mean? but, you know, it kind of goes back to that point. I mean, Bruce we... Willis has tiny feet. <laughs> It's like John Wayne. He's like six foot three and he's got like size four feet. That's right. That's why he walks in in such a peculiar way. Yeah, yeah. Walks like a penguin. (laughs) I thought it's because he's drunk all the time. But yeah, I mean that might have a hand in it. I'm not going to lie. Have we discussed this on the podcast before about the Mandalorian? Did we discuss this? Um, Don't think so. So the dude in the suit of the Mandalorian is John Wayne's grandson. That's why he's got that walk. And what? apparently, John Favreau, because he's a stuntman in real life, John Wayne's grandson, was working on a film with John Wayne's grandson, whose name I can't remember, so I can keep referring to him as Mando, with the dude who went on to play Mando. And he noticed he walked like John Wayne. Now he's got, he walks like his granddad. Just had it stored away in the back of his head. And then when he came to make Mandalorian, he said, Oh, I want that John Wayne walk. Oh, no, just the person. That's John Wayne's grandson in the Mando suit huh. with that strange John Wayne walk that he does. Didn't you know? know that. Yeah. That's 
I love those little tidbits, those little tiny things. Yeah, that, I love the fact that we got know, to that from Bruce, Bruce Willis. Willis feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, move it, moving on. Oh, do we have can. to? <laughs> <laughs> we spent one of the episodes speaking about Virgin Cola. We're going to spend a lot of time speaking about Bruce Arnie, Willis's Arnie's, feet. Arnie's ding dong. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just working our way through the body parts. So, there's, I mean, there's a couple of great, great little scenes and little ad-libs from Bruce Willis. So the scene where Hans Gruber has Holly Gennaro and he's threatening her and John McClane walks in, the, hi, honey, that was ad-libbed. Nice. And it, it, it's, 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 it's a great little touch because it, it, it kind of, it brings us back down to the meaning of what's happening. Mm. You know, it's now, it, it's no longer just a guns explosion bang bang shoot him up type film mm. now it's uh oh it's just a man trying to protect his family type mm. type element to it and i think it's a great great little touch yeah i like yeah. it's a great little touch that um they're on the verge of getting divorced as well yeah yeah it's immediately but yeah it's know. immediately very real and that mm. you know i said it earlier bruce willis kind of said he you know he's he's a real he's a real guy that you know he's not you know muscle bound idiot he's he's a real real she's life she's changed her surname back to Gennaro Gennaro yeah yeah, yeah from yeah. McLean yeah and like it's on her he walks in he sees it which I've got to say is a bit of a dick move oh, it's like, a dick move it? yeah, I tell you yeah. what if I walked into an office my <laughs> wife's office and I saw she had her maiden name yeah. I mean she does have her maiden name at work because she's worked there before we got married but mm. If she deliberately changed it back, I'd be like, oh, that, you know, <laughs> yeah. that that's grounds for... for oh, it's, you it's, know. it's a move, isn't it? She's making yeah. a move by that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's probably why you said earlier they had a bit more of a step into the comedic side from, from her character in the second one because you could do the same thing again. Okay, they don't interact with each other, mm. but there's only so many times you can probably see that before it's like, why are you still together then if you have this much They problem? do that in the third, don't yeah. they, where he's like, what, what happened between your wife? He's like, oh, I never rang her back or something like that. And he's yeah. like, go ring your wife and it becomes a whole thing. And it's literally, it's like we can get one more joke, one more thread out of this storyline you know about him not getting on with his wife and then the later movies they have divorced yeah i don't know whether that's because the actress didn't want to keep making the same movie i don't there's know pro- there it's, might be an possible, element right? of that right, yeah. um uh, but again you can only you can only flog that horse so much can't you you know what i mean in the second movie they're, they're definitely getting on a lot better aren't they you know? so would you like to know who almost directed this film oh yeah go for it paul verhoven Oh wow! He would do a great job again. I I see dread. Paul Verhoeven's robot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he's. I I get Paul Verhoeven and David Cronenberg mixed up. Oh really? I don't know why because they're very different filmmakers. Yeah, yeah. No, I see. Um, I see his version of this as much more violent. Yeah, and it's quite a violent film. What I really like is like we kind of talked about earlier with with the the TV, um movies where they dub it used to be a staple when I was growing up TV dubs and edits of movies when they were on TV they take a lot of the violence out or they take the swearing out you know Muddy Funster and all of those sort of things and it was it was part of funny enough my favourite one I ever remember seeing on TV was the TV edit of Robocop um <laughs> instead of I was thinking, oh, this could be a completely exp- expletive laden uh but yeah it's one of the best ones i've ever seen where it's like 
I got enough firepower to blow enough of this stuff up your gaping, <laughs> gaping nose. <laughs> it was just like, hey, heck you, they're not man. Even try, they're yeah. not even trying to conceal that it wasn't filmed at the same time. It was full so on. So somebody right. going, gaping yeah. stuff. <laughs> up your gaping nose. <laughs> it's a bit like those phone lines you ring where it says, is this your number? Oh, seven. Uh, yeah, <laughs> totally. And it was brilliant. The Die Hard had a lot of that, like, yippee ki chemo sappy is the edit and a lot of the violence cut out of the tv versions which is what i would have spent a long time seeing would have been the versions were were on tv that i would have recorded onto vhs tape and then watched again and again and interestingly enough i had i bought a vhs copy of die hard with a vengeance that had the elevator scene cut out of it so he gets in the elevator with the four people pretending to be cops you see him realize that they're not cops and you see him pull his gun and then it cuts to a different scene and then when it cuts back he's just getting out of the elevator covered in blood and there's dead bodies in the elevator no idea why it must have just been like one of those and that was on a VHS copy and it didn't say edited or anything but I did get it from like um, Wilco's or somewhere like that it was one of those equivalents like Poundland or something man, you know what I mean but yeah that, those sort of TV edits like I do miss I do miss the ridiculousness of those TV edits. And Die Hard is one of those movies that got edited a lot. And it's always interesting when you see it, you see the full full extent of the violence in, in the unedited versions. Quite impressive. <laughs> one of perhaps the most significant edits uh, with Die Hard, not from a made-for-TV perspective, but just from an editing point of view. So in the scene where Hans Gruber finally meets John McClane and there's that little tense scene and then all of a sudden Hans Gruber feigns being an American, feigns being... There's like an unusual... I don't know if it was in your copy, but it's definitely in my copy. Uh, there's an unusual kind of like focus on the watch of Hans Gruber. Yeah, yeah, that's And right. for, for years, a lot of people were like, what's all that about? Because mm. that's the kind of thing that that makes John McClane go, what's mm. that? Mm. It's because there's a couple of scenes that have been cut out throughout right. the movie. So I think when they first get out, there's a scene that's cut out where they all have the same watch and they all sync their time wa- their watches uh, together. Right. So they're all on the same time. And then there's another scene, and I think it's the ho-ho-ho, now I've got a machine gun. Just before that, he notices the watch of that the, 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 uh, the, the, the goon the is wearing. Man. And yeah. so that's his kind of... That's know, his way into realising who he is. And so... It looks a little bit out of place because I remember thinking it, maybe not again, because I can't remember the first time I watched it, as I said earlier. Mm. But I remember thinking it at one point and I was saying, because well, they never just focus on things in movies unless it means something. That's it's right. always They're like, telling you something. You know, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Why, is, why are they focusing so long on that dripping tap? Mm. You know, yeah, oh, because yeah. that tap's going to drip and everyone's going to get electrocuted or yeah. something like that, you know. Well, yeah, everything is is some sort of exposition. And like yeah. in the, in the beginning of three, it's like, you're still playing the lottery? Yeah, my badge number, 6919, <laughs> 6919, 6919. And you're like, I wonder if this is going to come in handy <laughs> later. You know what I mean? It's like you say, yeah. that nothing is there by accident in a movie, is it? You know? And I, to be fair, I actually think if they'd have kept that in there, I think the tension of that scene goes completely because I think the tension of that scene. You know, McLean's you know McLean's on the level yeah, and he, course, he, yeah. he's worked out. Whereas the beauty and of that scene in the gun. is yeah. you think, oh, he's been conned. Like, Hans yeah. Gruber's conned yeah. John McLean. And he's just handed him a gun. And then he's like, oops. Yeah. 
and it's just such a like it's a, so such funny. a smug line yeah, and it's so yeah. like that's right that's my John McClane that is yeah, yeah. you're what, right actually if, yeah. if, if you if the audience knows that he knows there's no tension there is there yeah yeah you're right it's just, that's probably why they cut it yeah such like, a good scene though just, and just going back to the yippee motherfucker line because it's so iconic uh, we spoke a little bit about this with with the I'll be back line from Terminator in the sense of it becomes sort of more than the line. Mm. It becomes bigger than what actually happens. And it's so like throwaway. He just backs through a door while saying it. And it's almost just mm. like, let's just fill some time. We need to see you backing through the door so we know where you're going. Just say something. It feels so throwaway. Mm. And yet it's just stuck because it's, you yeah, know. It's interesting because they really, it's in the second one is when they really yippee ki yeah. It's, it's like right a big, like everything, uh, yippee ki yeah, you mother. Just as he likes you know. the, yeah. Does he do it in any of the other movies? Do they drop it after the second movie? I'm pretty sure he does it in four. I don't remember him doing it in three. I could be no. wrong. I think, I think if you've done Three's it in got three, really great, you'd have to have scene. Samuel L. Jackson say it. Yeah, yeah, you, right, you, yeah. You'd have to, wouldn't you? Yeah. And it wouldn't make sense for that character unless, oh, you're that dude that I heard about who used that funny line in that news yeah. story I read four years. It'd be shoehorned yeah. for the sake of it. Um, I kind of want to hear... Uh, Samuel Jackson say that line now, though. I can hear it in my head, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. There's got to be an edit of that somewhere. Yeah, it's like, Fan edit or something. It's like that famous Snakes on the Plane line, isn't it? Yeah. That, was, that was fan service, wasn't it? Someone said, I want to hear him say I've had it enough with these MF, you know, and so on. So and on. speaking of TV edits, that was changed to mother flipping. Is it really? Yeah, yeah I've yeah, had yeah. it with these mother flipping snakes <laughs> on this mother flipping town. Uh, yeah. Just... I th- you know, I think it's it's weird how th- how we attach such gravitas and such kind of, uh, yeah, gravitas to, to lines when actually if you see them in the context of how they are, they it's not as big as the, what's come after it yeah. in the sense of... It's that they don't know the where this... culture yeah, references, yeah. It's you know. It's funny the stuff that gets picked up, isn't it, yeah. So what would you say is your favourite scene? Oh, do I have a favourite scene this week? It's, oh, I want to say it's Alan Rickman getting thrown out of the building just because of how they filmed that scene is is phenomenal. They didn't tell him, did they? They did like three or four takes. That's kind of three contested. or four takes. Is that right? Because uh, yeah. the, the version I was in did three or four takes. I think that's the generally... And then the last take, they just did, they went three, two, and then just let it go. I think that's the generally that's accepted his, thing. Uh, yeah. But he was asked about it in an interview and he says, hmm. I, I don't know where that came from. I, I can't really remember how it happened. But he does say a great line. He says, uh, when they were talking about it, somebody was saying something about CGI and he was like, I, I can just do it. And they realised, uh, rather than paying for CGI, we let the actor fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he contests that, but, you know, that's been the kind of the uh, yeah, the, the, myth, the narrative yeah. for quite a while. And mm-hmm. It's a great... However they got that reaction in his face is fantastic, superb. isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, just... Yeah. I mean, in I terms of pop culture... <laughs> You were right there. <laughs> that was my Alan Rickman. Okay. McLean Potter. <laughs> You're only good in small snippets. I, I could feel. do I could do McLean. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. Got such a distinctive voice, isn't Potter. it? Such a great actor, man. I mean, such yeah, that, that... Um sorry, favourite scene. <laughs> um 
What is my favourite scene in the first? So I've I've watched the the original trilogy now, and they're all mixed up in my head. So from the first movie, my fave it's Hans, baby. <laughs> it's definitely that scene. I I literally cannot wait for that scene every time that movie comes on. Every time I'm like, ah, oh. every time I see him doing coke uh, in the office, I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I remember what's coming. Hans, baby, let's do a deal. John, I oh, so good. I think that's my favorite scene. It's just like an unlikely scene, but I think that is my favorite scene. Like I love the the hose pipe over the top where you see his rubber feet as well. I love the end. It's it's definite. Yeah, it's definitely the the coked up eighties yuppie dude scene. That's my favorite. Yours? Mine, I'd probably say it's one of two. It's probably any scene where he's crawling through the vent. Oh, that is classic, you actually, know, isn't it? Uh, yeah, have yeah. a few less, make it, you know. Oh, yeah, he uh, talks to himself a yeah, lot yeah. in this movie. Come on, and, John, think, God damn it, think. Yeah. You know. Oh, that is good. Come, about, come to LA, we'll have a few drinks, we'll have a few laughs. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah that is quality. Right? Yeah. And that, that wisecracking <laughs> has kind of become... Synonymous. It, you've got yeah. so many different, so many films that have wise cracking. Yeah. You know, talk you know, to like yourself. The last, know. the last Boy Scout with Bruce Willis and Damon Wayans. Is it Wayans or Wayans? Yeah, I always yeah. say Wayans, but uh, I think it's Wayans. But um, he literally says it's not enough to just hit someone anymore. You got to like hit them with a surfboard and say "Surf's up." <laughs> I'm like, that's brilliant. Man. Which I think is Last Boy Scout. I think it's an unfairly maligned film. Actually, I think that's a Shane Black movie as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I yeah. think you're right. I think it's a great movie. I, I didn't watch it for years because everyone panned it. And then when I finally watched it, I was like, this movie's actually really good. But like, it's self-referential. That's the problem with it. You know what I mean? But so I think Shane... Did he, Shane Black write Last Action Hero as well? Which is also self-referential. Because apparently they ruined I know John McTiernan and directed. Apparently Last they tore his... Hero, didn't tear his script up, but they took a lot of it out. It was supposed to be like an ultra-violent self-referential movie and what came out wasn't quite what he'd written I'm sure I'm Last Action Hero is self-referential as well yeah but I think you I think know. they took out a lot of stuff that kind of made it feel was, a little that, flat that was panned as well yeah no, you know yeah. that was the movie where Schwarzenegger basically that was his first flop yeah it? he was yeah. like he felt Ooh, he fell into shit, a depression you know, didn't yeah. he yeah yeah but came back with yeah. um the camera one, True Lies. True Lies, yeah. yeah. I, I think Last Action Hero. I just love the line in Last Action Hero where he's like, uh, to be or not to be, not to be. <laughs> it's just fun. It's just brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's like, good line, isn't it? Uh, yeah, because I mean, you've got that sort of one-liner stuff. John Wayne was doing it as well. Like, yeah. Like, um, the, I think it's Predator. Yeah, it's Predator where Arnie... Blows the door up and says, "Knock, knock." It's in all the Bond films, isn't it? You know. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that's just that's how things direct, were. The knock, knock line is is taken from a John Wayne film. Where he either boots the door open or shoots it open, walks. He goes, "Knock, knock." That's such a good line. You know what I mean? And uh, Arnie, stick around. <laughs> <laughs> knock, knock. But, stick around. But yeah, I don't I, don't wake my friend. He's dead tired. <laughs> Benit, let off some steam. <laughs> Consider that a divorce. <laughs> oh, that's so recorded. Oh, yeah, that's such a good movie. Uh, um, I th- yeah, I think my favourite scene is probably the scene where Hans Gruber and John McClane first meet. That is a great so scene. Much, so, such high stakes in that scene. Mm. Tension's palpable. 
Uh, as I said, I like the, the vent scenes. I lo- What I like is this kind of the little tiny tidbit scenes, mm. like when he gets off the plane and there's that, again, That's that's been edited because there's, a, I think there's a couple of lines of dialogue between them. Mm. But that little line of like you can see the air stewardess giving him the giving him the eye and he, and he's he's just not interested because mm. I think very quickly that tells you the kind of man he is. Happens in the second one you know? as well. She's like, I get off in a half hour. Do you wanna? He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I, just, think, I yeah. just need to send a fax. <laughs> <laughs> I just think I just think those those things are quite considering. You know how how many movies would you see where the what, man's going through trouble? Mm. it's very easy to in the throes of passion or whatever it is mm. you know to be the womanizer and you know james bond-esque type thing yeah I think very quickly it tells you okay he's a family man well that's the he's thing this, this problems, movie doesn't but... have that like you say it doesn't have that um here's the dolly bird sort of thing here's the he's, here's the sex scene here's the it like, doesn't have a his have wife a his wife is element. realistically yeah. his wife and she's, she's a good looking lady they see but each she's other not like some few... 20 year old yeah you know with her boobs hanging out or whatever, you know, which you would expect in these sort of movies previously and after this, you would see that, like, there would be a romantic lead uh, opposite him who's half his age. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Which is sort of a staple in Hollywood, isn't it? You know, And they even mirror that scene as well where it's... Uh, with the cop at the end. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you hang in there, buddy. That's it when they're with, talking to each other. Can, he's up there and he's hurting, man. Trying to think of the guy's name, the hand baby guy. Oh, I can't remember the yeah. character's name. He's he, so good. He basically oh, he basically no. does the same thing to Holly Gennaro, mm. and she's like, "Really? Like, mm. can you leave my office, please?" That kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that I, there's I, also that great touch artist was snorting that coat when Bruce Willis looks at him yeah. and just points at his nose. Doesn't he? He's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely little touch. It's, I, I, just, I I think I really like those. Obviously, those big action set pieces and those big scenes. Yeah. But I really like those little small elements mm. and the ways of tell the way of showing character rather than telling. Because it would be very easy to say, "Hey, come on, we've not been too great recently. We've been going through some problems." And mm. you do it all in in the in the space of a couple of lines. Mm. But to show, you know, you know, I still love you. You could say those lines, but it doesn't really mean anything. But to show it, mm. you go, "Okay, well." Essentially, two people have, have offered themselves on a plate to the to both John McClane and Holly McClane, mm. but they both go, "See you later." Not mm. interested, you know. Despite all the problems, it's a very quick way of showing their character. Holly, baby, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a real soft spot for him, haven't oh, you? He's so repugnant. Yeah. <laughs> I do love a good repugnant character. Like, like you got the news reporter in this as well. Yeah, he's, he's like he's great. He's up there with. Did you get that? Tell me you got that. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. again another ad lib line f- yeah. from him. He's, well, he's, he's great. He's up there with um, is it Peck from Ghostbusters? This man has no dick. You know that dude. It's he, the same dude, isn't it? It's not the same actor, is it? Yeah. Is it the same actor? He, he's the dude. The the reporter in Die Hard is, is in Ghostbusters. He's just got a beard. And this. Well, he reminds me of him, so that'd yeah. be why then, yeah. <laughs> really, how do I not know this? I'm, I'm literally going to have to you. fill the air. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I like. I I think perhaps because of my background and looking at lot, lots of scripts and working from, an, from a performing point of view, I've always liked 
little small ways of showing character rather than saying oh it. show me don't tell yeah me it's, it's an age old thing you know if you're going to write a, write something you show you don't tell but a lot of people don't really know what that means and now your mind has been blown I think just... I must have forgotten this because I'll be honest with you I was watching it yesterday watching the sequel yesterday going god he reminds me of the bloke from Ghostbusters they're both they're basically the same character they're both odious and then I, I literally went Apparently that dude from Ghostbusters is a really nice bloke and he, he had quite a hard time after Ghostbusters came out. Everyone, everywhere he went, people were just like, you're a dick. Do you know what I mean? And he was like, oh, this is horrible. And that was as far as my mind went. <laughs> is that a direct quote? Oh, this, this sucks. Horrible. He was like, this sucks. Blimey, <laughs> he's the same bloke. Yeah, couldn't picture him in my head. That's, just, that's hilarious. Yeah, he's right up there with his own character in that other film. <laughs> But I do like a good, odious character in a movie. It's quite evident. You, sp- you know, when we spoke about The Fly, you were you pretty much, f- you know, yeah. y- your your love for... I can't remember his... Stannis Baratheon. Stannis... <laughs> I can't remember his actual Stannis name. Baran. That's so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stannis Baran. You fell in love with his character. And no, was, no, I thought know, he was horrible. But I just... But you like that about him. Um, it's brilliant. I like, what I like about that character is, is he's clearly horrible. And yet somehow they make him the hero, kind of, at the end, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, there's something about a good repugnant. It must be fun as an actor to play someone repugnant, you know? I, mean? I feel like if we ever do Wall Street, you're going to lose your shit. Yeah, Michael Gecko. <laughs> Different kind of repugnant, but yeah. To, yeah no. <laughs> I loved you in Wall Street. That's hot shots as well, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so how about some further watching? Oh, further watching. All all of the diehards, obviously. Especially the first three. All of the lethal weapons. Um, as we say, the third the third diehard is just a lethal weapon um, script that was repurposed. And it's, it shows how... Because the movies, Die Hard and Lethal Weapons are very different movies. And Die Hard 3 is a very different movie from Die Hard 1 and 2. Yet they're somehow interchangeable. Um, that 80s action, like, it lends itself to it so well. Um, I would watch the Dread movie, which is essentially the same thing. And is it the raid that they actually based the, the Dread movie yeah. on? Yeah, the raid. Yeah, I'd watch that. I'd watch Last Boy Scout for sure. Um, yeah, let me have a quick look, see what else I've written down. But yeah, what about you? I think if you if if you want Bruce Willis or slightly newer Bruce Willis. And it'd be good because I, you know, and I, you know, now that we know, you know, Bruce Willis and his his difficulties with Aspraxia, it's more than understandable as to perhaps why his his later films aren't quite at the same level as his earlier work. Mm. But a, a great film from I think 2016 is Looper. Oh yeah, it's, yeah you know, it's a sci-fi movie, film, yeah. but but it's you know he's got all the elements of Bruce Willis that you want in a Bruce Willis film. Mm. Yeah, you're not wrong. Oh, looking at my notes, my under-favourite scene, I also had Air Vent written down, so there you go. Yeah, um, yeah apart from that, I've also got Trading Places written down for a good Christmas movie, adult-style yeah. Christmas movie. Trading Places, completely different movie, yeah. but adult Christmas-themed movie with a lot of laughs in it and some problematic scenes. Um, but it was filmed in the 80s, though. Yeah, yeah. We, Whenever we, bump we watch up against this. And yeah. that's the one thing you don't really find in Die Hard. There isn't really a problematic scene other than a little bit of workplace sexual harassment when Holly Gennaro just goes to her office and gets chatted up by Haynes, uh, yeah. baby, you know. Yeah, and, you're right. It's not, but, not overly problematic. You get to the third one and they play on that sort of um, 
that scenario, don't they, between um, Zeus and McLean, you know. Um, but yeah, you're right, that's interesting. It's not, it is timeless of its time and yet somehow still timeless, man, yeah. This movie could be released next week and it would fit. It mm. doesn't, you know, you know, another John McTiernan film, Commando, or sorry, Joel Silver film, Commando, mm. that is so 80s that it must be painful to actually... I mean, even the villain, yeah. Bennett in Commando, yeah. is the most 80s yeah. villain you've ever seen. So, like, chainmail on and stuff. He's straight out of Mad Max or something, isn't he? You know? I think he probably auditioned for the wrong film. I think he thought he was going for Mad yeah. Max 4. Uh, it let off some steam. Yeah, great line. Uh, you know, it's knives a part of me. <laughs> I want to make it a part. Is that is that more confusing? That one? no, no, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. is the line, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, because he does it in um, Running Man as well. This sure. chainsaw is part of me. I want to make it part of you. No thanks, you can keep it. <laughs> Here is buzzsaw. He had to split. <laughs> uh, Do you know we've done more Arnie impressions than this? Than we did in the Terminator. In the Terminator no, he spent too yeah. much time speaking about his wang. His, uh, his, uh, yeah. But, yeah, I think in terms of further viewing, I mean, we've mentioned them and I don't think they're quite as good, but they're similar in tone in the sense of it's it's one central-ish location and one man against, you know, the, you know, the Olympus has fallen or that series of films. It's, mm. very, it's very similar. doesn't necessarily have a great villain, mm. uh, but they're very, very similar. One film that kind of flips it, where it's, again, it's a Gerald Butler film, and I think it has some of the same, it's a much grittier and dark version, but I think you can find some of the same stakes in this, is Law Abiding Citizen. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, when he's in prison. Yeah, he, yeah, Gerald Butler plays against type and plays the I feel like guy. I went through a, a phase of watching a lot of Gerald Butler movies, like, not even really on purpose. I think, like... I guess, like, you know, in uh, Amazon or whatever it is you're streaming on, just keeps recommending yeah, yeah. the same film. You watch this, so you yeah. must like this. So I just I went through a bunch of them, yeah. So I yeah. saw Laura by the Citizen, yeah, it was all right. Uh, uh, yeah, I, th- I think you can probably get away with any Bruce Willis film, sort of pre, pre-2005, really. Mm. You know, I think... Uh, I, I mean, Die Hard 4 is a very different film. It's it, 4.0, right? Yeah, yeah. I feel I like, quite like that movie. I think all right, up to the point he surfs the jumbo jumbo jet, or whatever it is, the yes. uh, fighter pilot jet plane thing. But then he does in three, he surfs on the top of a digger or something, doesn't he? On a big dump truck, he just likes surfing on vehicles. Yeah, uh, trying to think. No, they play on it, they have a fight on the wing of a plane. I think I, I, oh, that I, bit in Die Hard 2 when that dude gets sucked through the, the engine on the plane wing. Stuff of nightmares, that, isn't it? <laughs> also, would have broken the engine. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, like, there's no, like, oh, we can still take off after that. Yeah. It's over, you know, but hey, oh, you don't need realism, do you? <laughs> yeah, anything, Bruce Willis, anything like that 90s era Bruce Willis or whatever. I mean, you get to the end of the 90s with Bruce Willis and you, you get to, like, the Sixth Sense, um... Those sort of movies that he was doing. I'd love The Sixth Sense. I haven't seen that in a long time either. Um, so, yeah, and then that sort of the, the action era, Bruce Willis. I think Hudson Hawk is, I can't, I've seen it. It's I much maligned, it. isn't it? Much maligned. I think that was the beginning of the turning for him where he sort of moved away from action movies for a while um, and went more back into the comedy sort of roles for a bit. 
guest appearances on Friends, and then he he found a sort of second he's life. He's great in Friends. He's so good. He's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He sort of found a second life with the like. I'm just a sex machine. <laughs> 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 he starts crying and he can't stop. She wants him to be more in touch with her, his emotions and then changes her mind. Like, stop crying, <laughs> mate. <Yeah. laughs> ah, amazing. But yeah, yeah. I can't remember. Oh, yeah. He found a second sort of life with, after uh, Sixth Sense where he sort of got, you know, into. I didn't say he got into horror movies. We have that sort of an, another period of his career. Didn't he? When's 12 Monkeys? 12 Monkeys is probably mid 90s. Yeah, yeah. So you get 12 Monkeys is just after Pulp Fiction. Which again is it's it's similar the role he plays in Pulp Fiction is a similar role, but very different from his action hero. It's he's playing essentially the same character he plays. That sort of quiet, doesn't say, doesn't talk much. He's a man of action. Um but it's a very different scenario. It's a very grounded I was going to say realistic. Hopefully that's not a realistic scenario to find yourself in. Dear God. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah. If you ever walk into a room and Ving, Ving Rames is holding a shotgun with a ball gag <laughs> yeah. in his mouth, that's a ve- that- <laughs> I'm going to get medieval on his ass. the actor's mind the show that delves deep into the psyche to find out what makes a great character a great performance and what makes a great actor I am Julius Oxbridge Teeth III join me as we go deep into the actor's mind Julius Oxbridge Teeth III, won't you join me next week as we go deep into the actor's mind? So that was Bury Our Bones With for this week. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed putting it together for you. Please don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us in all the usual social media places as Bury Our Bones With. So please do come by and say hi and send us your comments. Until next time, I've been Jimmy Murphy, he's been Ryan Edlington, and this has been Bury Our Bones With Die Hard. Speaking about the uh, Nick Cave project to make, uh, die hard. I know, like, um, more rats too is going to be more die hard, but yeah, he, he wrote the script. Get, he get, not, it doesn't have a lot of luck with writing scripts. He couldn't get Universal to release it. They, Universal said we don't want to make it, we will release the film. No, it's not a problem. <laughs> Peter, Peter Cain, he's on the, he's on the interview with Jonathan Watson, he's like, uh, yeah, I'm going to make it.
Yeah, I want to remake Dyer. It's, 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 well, it is a comment, but he's like, yeah, welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> you know. <laughs> no worries. thinking when you said earlier is sitting on a hello and welcome to bet hello <laughs> <laughs> uh, hello and well <clears throat> mr ryan Etherington. fuck eggerlington I was, we've, worst, got, we've got a new host for today. And the worst thing is, in my head, I started going, no, this is going well. And it's, <laughs> it's like, no, just concentrate, mate. Yeah, mate. <laughs> you don't get TV edits anymore, do you? Such no. a shame. Right. Um, Streaming's ruining the world. 